Chair, staff's ready when you are. Thank you, clerk. Uh, good evening and welcome to the Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, 5.30 p.m. meeting of the Planning and Design Commission. The meeting is now called to order. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank you, Chair. Commissioners, if you can please unmute. Commissioner Zhang? Here. Commissioner Chase? Here. Commissioner Lamas? Absent. Commissioner Buckley? Here. Commissioner Keaton? Here. Commissioner Hernandez is absent. Commissioner <clears throat> Macias Reed? Here. Vice Chair Young? Here. Commissioner Blunt? Here. Commissioner Andrade? Here. Commissioner Thompson? Here. And Chair Wallace? Here. Thank you. We have quorum. Thank you. Uh, I would like to remind members of the public and chambers that if you'd like to speak on an agenda item, please turn in a speaker slip when the item begins. You will have three minutes to speak once you are called on. After the first speaker, we will no longer accept speaker slips for that item. We will now proceed with today's agenda. Please rise for the opening acknowledgments and honors of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisenan people, the Southern Maidu Valley and Lanes Miwok, Potwin-Winton peoples, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather together today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Thank you. Please remain standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, a couple of housekeeping items for this evening. Uh, we are continuing item number four, the 2024 Title 17 Omnibus Ordinance Bundle to a later date at staff's request. I've confirmed with legal counsel that no motion is needed. And then we are moving the director's report up to right now <laughs> in the agenda. Uh, Stacia, please proceed. Thank you, Chair. Two items for you this evening. First, uh, the P Personnel and Public Employees Committee has passed the Commission's 2023 annual report on to Council, so it will be um, at City Council on March 12th on consent, if you'd like to check it out there. And then also just a heads up about the general plan heading to council this next Tuesday. Um, something to watch for the whole city. So that's all that I have. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Stacia. All right, and our first business order of business today is the approval of the consent calendar. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on the consent calendar? Thank you, Chair. I have no speaker slips. All right, thank you. Are there any commissioners who wish to speak on this item? or any motions. <laughs> Commissioner Macias Reed. I'll make a motion to move. Thank you. And Commissioner Zhang. I'll second the motion. All right, a motion by Commissioner Macias Reed and a second from Commissioner Zhang. Clerk, please. Thank you, Chair. Commissioners, if you can please unmute. Commissioner Zhang. Aye. Commissioner Chase. Aye. Commissioner Lamas, absent. Uh, Commissioner Buckley? Aye. Commissioner Caden? Aye. Commissioner Hernandez is absent. Commissioner Macias Reed? Aye. Commissioner or Vice Chair Young? Aye. Commissioner Blunt? Aye. Commissioner Andrade? Aye. Commissioner Thompson? Aye. And Chair Wallace? Aye. Thank you. Motion passes. Thank you, Clerk. 
And we will now proceed to our public hearing. Item number two is the Corporate Way Retail Pad with Drive-Through, item P22-040. Are there any recusals or disclosures from the commission on this item? Seeing none, uh, we have a staff presentation from Zach. <clears throat> it's not Zach. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good evening, Chair and fellow Commissioners. My name is Zach Dalla, Associate Planner with the Community Development Department. The item before you tonight is the Corporate Way Retail Pad with drive through Project, located south of Corporate Way and north of 7375 Greenhaven Drive. The project site is surrounded by office developments to the north and east and neighborhoods supporting retail commercial to the south in a strip mall fronting Greenhaven Drive. The applicant is requesting to construct a 2,830 square foot commercial building consisting of a suite for a Dutch Bros coffee <clears throat> drive through restaurant and a second suite for a future restaurant. To reduce the visibility and impact of the cars associated with the drive through the applicant has proposed several, several site improvements, including a 25 foot wide landscape strip, an elevated berm along the adjacent right of way, a small CMU wall along the drive through lane and cool roof coverings and cool pavement treatments within the parking lot and non pervious walkways. The development also incorporates enhanced pedestrian amenities, such as a canopy and tree shading, pedestrian benches, covered outdoor eating area, and a 10-foot wide pedestrian connection from the sidewalk enhanced with the trellis. To facilitate the proposed development, the project requests the following entitlements. A rezone of the project parcels from office business low-rise mixed-use zones to the general commercial zone within the Greenhaven Executive, planned par <clears throat> Executive Park planned unit development, Amendments to the Greenhaven Executive Park PUD guidelines and schematic plan to designate the site from office to commercial office restaurant and drive through restaurant and to amend the permitted uses in the commercial zones to allow one drive through uh, facility and remove the prohibition on fast food restaurants. A conditional use permit for a drive through restaurant, site plan design review to review the proposed commercial building, drive through facility and associated site improvements and a tree permit for the removal of one private protected tree. Staff mailed hearing notices to all property owners, residents, and neighborhood associations within 500 feet of the project site, as well as posted a hearing notice at the site. To date, staff has received two letters of opposition and two e-comments in opposition. Staff recommends the Planning and Design Commission forward to the City Council a recommendation of approval as the project is consistent with the Employment Center mid-rise designation, the proposed general commercial zone, the Greenhaven Executive Park PUD, and the citywide design guidelines. Promote sustainable growth and change by developing a vacant, underutilized site with supportive retail uses that contributes to the variety and diversity of uses within the existing employment center, furthering the retail viability of the area. <clears throat> and lastly, it balances the auto-oriented nature of the development by providing abundant landscaping along the right-of-way frontages, enhanced pedestrian amenities, and cool roof treatments, reducing the potential urban heat urban heat island effects. And with that, that concludes my presentation. I'll be able to answer any questions tonight. <clears throat> and the applicant, Laura Cass, is um, also able to answer any questions. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Um, I think we'll open it up for commissioner questions, and then we'll take public comment, and then we'll bring it back for a vote. Any commissioner questions on this item? All right. Um, or questions from the applicant or for the applicant. Commissioner Blunt. Um, yeah, I was actually just curious if the applicant is here or. Yeah, we're here. Yeah. Okay. If they, I don't know if they wanted to speak. 
Uh, if you guys would like to speak, I don't. I, I wasn't told that you had a presentation. Um, you're here for questions, so if you have any questions for the applicant. No, just okay. All right. Um, not seeing any other questions from the commission. Uh, Clerk, do we have any speakers for this item? Thank you, Chair. I have no speaker slips for this item. All right, no speaker slips for this item. So bringing back to. Uh, the dais, uh, any commissioner comments or motions? Commissioner Macias-Reed. Um, I'm very familiar with the vacant parcel. My son went to school at the Mary Hill there for many years. Um, I'm, I actually used to live very close to that area. Um, and I think it's exciting to see that there's something happening there. Uh, it's a, a great location to have something like that nearby. You have a lot of people who live nearby who can actually walk to um, any restaurants or coffee shops. So I think it's a good location. And I'd like to move staff's recommendation. All right, motion from Commissioner Macias-Reed. Next we have Commissioner Buckley. Thank you, Chair. Um, my children also went to Mary Hill, and um, so I'm familiar with the site as well. Seems like a great place uh, to have um, access to that kind of resource, and it seems like it'll fit well within the community, so I'd like to second the motion. All right, we have a second from Commissioner Buckley. Um, seeing no other comments from the dais, clerk, would you please take the vote? Thank you, Chair. Commissioners, if you can please unmute. Commissioner Zhang? Aye. Commissioner Chase? Aye. Commissioner Lamas? I had a question, because uh, I didn't come in when the presentation initially began. Am I able to cast a vote, or do I have to withhold for abstaining? You may Okay. I read the report. And... Okay, perfect. Aye. I approve. Commissioner Buckley? Aye. Commissioner Caden? Commissioner Hernandez is absent. Commissioner Macias-Reed? Aye. Vice Chair Young? Aye. Commissioner Blunt? Aye. Commissioner Andrade? Aye. Commissioner Thompson? Aye. And Chair Wallace? Aye. Thank you, motion passes. All right. Congratulations. Okay. Now we are on to item number three. Item number three is the Maverick gas station at West Stockton Boulevard and Sheldon Road, um, number P21-029. Are there any recusals or disclosures from the commission on this item? I have to put myself in the queue. All right, Commissioner Macias-Reed. Yes, I spoke with the applicant and representatives of the applicant consistent with staff report. Commissioner Zhang. I too had a call with the applicant consistent with the staff report. Commissioner Andrade. I had a conversation with the applicant consistent with the staff, staff report. Uh, Vice Chair Young. I had a Zoom call with the applicant consistent with the staff report. I also had a call with the applicant and the representative consistent with the staff report and then is it both of you? Okay. No, I had a conversation with the applicant that was also consistent with the staff report. 
Ditto. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, folks. And now we'll have a presentation for, on the item from Angel. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, commissioners, Chair Wallace and Vice Chair Young. My name is Angel Anguiano, and I'm an associate planner with the Community Development Department. Uh, this item is P21029, Maverick Gas Station. Uh, this project is a request for entitlements to establish a gas station and convenience store located at the northwest corner of Sheldon Road and West Stockton Boulevard in South Sacramento. Uh, on the screen is an aerial image of the subject site, outlined in red, which is currently vacant. Uh, the applicant is proposing to only develop the southern portion of the site for the gas station and convenience store. Uh, the remainder of the parcel to the north will remain vacant. At this time, there's no development proposal. Uh, the property is located at, at city limits. Um, it's bounded by Sacramento County to the east and the city of Oak Grove to the south. Uh, for additional context of the site and the surrounding area, on the screen is a map of the project zoning and the surrounding zoning designations. Uh, the project site has a zoning designation of general commercial and a general plan designation of suburban center. Uh, adjacent uses are commercial and multifamily to the north, uh, commercial and residential to the south, an existing cemetery, a city approved self storage facility and highway 99 are to the east and a multifamily dwelling uh, development to the west. Uh, commissioners, for your consideration this evening, is a list, here's a list of the requested entitlements by the applicant. Um, they're requesting for the adoption of a mitigated negative declaration, a mitigation monitoring report plan, uh, a conditional use permit to establish a temp pump uh, gas station, a conditional use permit for tobacco sales, and site plan design review to construct a store fueling facility and site improvements on approximately 3.66 acres in the general commercial zone. Uh, gas stations are allowed within the C2 zone with approval of a CUP by the Planning and Design Commission. Um, Sacramento City Code states that gas stations capable of simultaneously fueling more than 10 vehicles are permitted if the use is located greater than half a mile from the center of an existing light rail station platform, from the center of an existing light rail platform station and within 500 feet of a freeway right of way or a roadway with six or more lanes. Uh, the proposed project is located within is located 1.2 miles away from the center of Consumers River uh, Light Rail Station within 500 feet of a freeway right away, which is Highway 99, and located along a six-lane six road, which is Sheldon Road. Uh, on the screen, you can see the proposed store, which is tucked on the northern piece of the site. The gas pumps are located in the middle of the site. Access uh, will be provided from both West Stockton Boulevard and Sheldon Road. Uh, a total of 39 vehicle parking spaces are proposed, including four short-term and two long-term bike parking spaces. Uh, included in those 39 uh, vehicle parking spaces are electric vehicle charging spaces, ADA parking, and future EV parking and charging. Um, as you might be able to tell from, from the site plan, um, development along West Stockton Boulevard, and for that matter, Sheldon Road, um, exist a number of easements and encumbrances that would limit the development opportunity for the whole site. And so the applicant um, has worked with city staff, including public works and urban forestry to come up with the landscape plan and also access uh, that would 
uh, both facilitate the development, but also uh, keep in mind all the other encumbrances on the property. Um, so it's worth noting that um, city staff and Public Works have been working closely with the applicant um, in collaboration with Caltrans regarding access restrictions along West Stockton Boulevard. Um, the applicant will continue to work with Caltrans uh, for final permitting should the project be approved this evening. Uh, the project was reviewed against the city's commercial design guidelines. Staff finds that the proposed project is consistent uh, with those di design guidelines, including the following examples. Uh, the site provides usable amenities, obvious from street view, including outdoor dining, electric, electric vehicle charging stations, and ample bike parking. Uh, the majority of the wall surfaces facing the fueling station and Sheldon Road are transparent windows and a door system allowing visual surveillance in and out of the building, uh, supporting functional and implied security. Uh, the store presents quality and durable exterior materials, including stone veneer, fiber cement board and batten siding, metal and masonry block, and aluminum storefront windows and the door system. Uh, lastly, the design of the metal canopy is well proportioned to the building size, uh, visually highlights the store entry and will provide patrons with, so with solar and rain protection. On the screen, you can see uh, the front and side elevation uh, from West Stockton Boulevard and Sheldon Road and the image in the middle is the rear, if you will, uh, the elevation of the building elevations. So the applicant is also requesting for a CUP uh, to sell tobacco. Uh, as part of the Title V licensing requirements, um, no license shall be issued and no existing license shall be renewed to authorize tobacco retailers within a thousand feet of another tobacco retailer already licensed. Uh, based on current licensing information, um, which tracks uh, tobacco retailer license within the jurisdiction of the city of Sacramento, staff identified one tobacco retailer uh, beyond 1,000 feet. Um, tobacco retailers located within 1,000 feet of another retailer can be issued a license if they devote no more than 5% of the shelf space to tobacco products and at least 10% of the shelf space to allow for uh, fresh food uh, or healthy foods uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, meats and poultries and such. Uh, the applicant, although the site is beyond 1,000 feet from the, from the other uh, tobacco retailer, Maverick will, provide, um, will be providing fresh and healthy food at approximately 38% of the self floor area. Uh, a condition of approval has been included, uh, limiting the amount of area to display tobacco products, and they will also be not visible to the public. Staff is recommending approval of the proposed project this evening and recommends that the Planning and Design Commission approve the project subject to the draft findings of fact and conditions of approval found in the staff report. Uh, that concludes my presentation. Uh, the applicant is here today and would also like to give a brief presentation. Thank you. There we go. Oh, thank you. And I utilize this. Good evening. Uh, my name is Kevin Dice. I am a senior planning project manager for Maverick. We are located in Salt Lake City, at least that's where I work out of is Salt Lake City. And uh, I'd like to first thank staff. We've been working with staff for a long time on this project. We've had a lot of issues. Uh, I wouldn't say issues, but it, 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 there were a lot of logistical things that we had to uh, overcome uh, in order to get to this point. So. Really quick, uh, this is going to be a feature that we're going to put out front. As you can see, I think the, it'll be a great feature 
of the building. That is in uh, Garden of the Gods uh, in Colorado. Okay, just so you know, put it in perspective. Uh, a little bit about Maverick. Uh, Maverick is a family-owned business still to this day. It started in 1952 in Randolph, uh, Wyoming. And Randolph, Wyoming is probably about as big as a city block here, and it started off with one store. The Call family, uh, it's Crystal Magalette, who is uh, originally uh, Crystal Call. Her uncle started the store, and then with FJ management, they purchased Maverick from her uncle, and they brought it underneath the, the FJ umbrella. So it's still a family-owned and operated, privately-owned store. It's not a public, uh, not a public uh, corporation at all. In September of 2023, we purchased uh, Come and Go, with his, which is a larger... Midwest convenience store and gas station operator. We that doubled our size from 400 stores to over 800 stores in 20 states and 14,000 uh, employees. Uh, we did a little bit about our operations. We operate 24 7, 365 days a year. Uh, we do do fresh food, and uh, I'm so glad that uh, Angel put the uh, floor plan on there to show you where it is. Uh, I also have a floor plan, which I can point a few things out on. But we do fresh food, and what I mean by that, we make sandwiches, we do salads, we do fruit bowls. Uh, in, the, in, in the morning, we have a lot of other fruit. We have apples, we have bananas, uh, and, and anything that uh, you can grab and go on that. We also have prepackaged food, which everybody uh, understands what that is. Uh, at the same time, uh, we have all, all different types of beverages. We have a coffee bar. We, we call it a bean to cup, where we have the beans on top. It grinds it and comes right out into your cup. It's pretty good. I, I, we have one of the machines in our office, and I, I utilize it every morning. Uh, at the same time, we have fountain drinks as well as uh, drinks that you pull out of the case. At this time, we're not anticipating sales of beer and wine because we have to get a CUP for that as well. And if we decide to do that, we'll come back and we'll uh, apply for a CUP on that one. <clears throat> uh, we are asking for a CUP for the sale of tobacco. Now, with that in mind, I would say that uh, tobacco sales are a very low percentage. We are not a smoke, uh, we are not a smoke shop. What we want to do is we, 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 it's a convenience for people if they come in. We have agreed with staff that we will make it a dark, dark, dark tobacco. there we go, dark tobacco. And well, what that is is that there will be a smoke, smoky glass to hide the, to hide the actual tobacco. So people won't have that impulse, an impulse urge if they come up and they'll say, oh, yeah, by the way, give me a pack of cigarettes or a vape pen or something like that. You won't be able to see it. They'll have to come in with the idea that, that that's what they want to do. Uh, so we have agreed to that. Uh, something that's really important to us and, and we like to point out is that the bathrooms are open to the public. We don't require anybody to uh, purchase anything to utilize the bathroom. So if you're on 99 and, and you have a child or you have to use the facilities, you can stop, you can go and use the facilities, and we won't say, oh, by the way, you have to buy beef jerky or something of that nature. So there are a lot of uh, facilities that require you to do that. We've never been that way. Something that, uh, else that is very important to us we like to point out is that we're not a truck stop. Now, we have a lot of very, uh, we have another uh, layout that has what we call a high flow, which is, uh, that'll service as trucks. And we always get, oh, you're a truck stop. And it's like, no, because we don't have showers. We don't have lounges. We don't have internet service. We don't allow overnight parking. 
And all those are just features that, 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 that truck stops have. We want people to come in, get gas, and leave. Maybe buy a big gulp or something like that if we had a, the equivalent of a big gulp <laughs> on that. Uh, Angel went over uh, the, uh, the overall aerial very well. I do want to point out that rectangular box that's off to the left side, which would be the east side of the property, that has been built out with a parking area, a parking garage that will service the, um, the, the apartment complex. There's a big wall that goes around it, and that will act as a barrier in, in, in terms of shielding the uh, apartment complex from the, from, from the uh, store overall. This is our site plan. And uh, this one's probably a little bit different than the one that you have in your packet for the simple reason is that on your packet, you'll see that on the Sheldon uh, entrance, there's stamped concrete. And we just wanted to make sure that we are doing the same on the Stockton entrance. So we flipped this one out just to show that it'll be stamped concrete in the apron area for where you're turning in. Now, uh, with regards to access on Sheldon, we will be constructing a deceleration lane that entrance will be a right in, right out. The same with uh, the Stockton. We're going to be constructing a deceleration lane, and it'll be right in, right out. We would love to get a left turn in. However, the traffic study has uh, panned out to show that uh, the queuing distance was not meeting the code, so we weren't able to get a left in. So we'll have two right ins and right outs into this site. Uh, on both sides of Sheldon and on Stockton, uh, there is a drainage swale there, and that drainage swale is, uh, will be taking up a lot of the water, not only from our site, but that conveys water down Stockton and along, along Sheldon. Our on-site water will be retained in that hatched area. That is a stormwater management pond, and it will collect the water from the site, and it will be released into that swale at what they call historic levels of a rate. So it won't be a flush in, it'll be trickling out. Since, and it won't be detention, it'll be retention, meaning it'll be retained for a period of time and then it'll be allowed to either absorb into the ground or to trickle out. Uh, the overall canopy, we have 10, uh, what we call MEP, MPE, MPDs, and that are they are the pumps which can service 20 cars. Now, to the north, to the east of that of that canopy, we're going to have two electric chargers which will service four cars. Two of those uh, uh, parking uh, spaces for the electric chargers will be uh, ADA accessible. Then we'll plumb for four additional new uh, in, in the future at some point for uh, putting in two more chargers for four more cars for a total of eight. Uh, besides that, we'll go to the landscape plan. You can see where the uh, uh, drainage swale is, and that is, that, that is on Caltrans uh, property, which was eventually will be conveyed to the city, so the city will take ownership at some time in the future on that. And that, that we were not impacting that at all. We will be putting uh, street trees in along Stockton, uh, and we'll be putting trees in throughout the site. We worked with the environmental department to make sure that all the trees are considered native to California in this area. This is our floor plan. Um, something that I always like to point out is that the front part, you'll, uh, you have two entrances that come in and then a, then a wall. That's all glass. 
And the importance of that is, is that uh, you see where the register area is. The registered the people, the employees can monitor what's going on out in the parking lot. And uh, uh, if somebody is having a problem with the pump, they can see that. If there's somebody out there panhandling, they can see that as well. So that glass is a glass wall that will be able to keep eyes on the outside area. And as, as was pointed out, we have a lot of fresh food. We have the obligatory roller doll dogs area because everybody needs one of those. And at the same time, we have a hot bar in there, which basically would be where you'd have the pizza that would be in the box. You'd have the burritos that we make. And we do a morning breakfast burrito as well as different flavors of burritos during the day. We also make sandwiches that will be in a cold case along the along the walls, you have the kitchen area in the back, and you have the coffee and the beverage fountain drink area. You see where the bathrooms are, and we have another uh, entrance that goes out to the patio area. This is a oblique picture of, or a, a oblique elevation of our, of our store. I put this in here specifically to show that the buildings step back. So that's just gonna be a flat wall. It stepped back. I also like to point out that we have the entrance feature there, which we call the doghouse, and it breaks up the lineal part of the of the building. So we're meeting different uh, architectural features and adding our architectural features so that it's not just this plain block building. Uh, the, we will be doing a culture stone wainscoat uh, around the building, and the columns, as you can see, are a little bit higher stacked with culture stone. The boarding will be fiberboard, board and batten, and will be painted. This is another feature. I like to point out that the, the, the windows in the front, you can see the doors on either side and the windows but beyond that. That's where the register area is so that they can look through and they can see out into the canopy area. This is our canopy. Uh, nothing really great about it or special about it, except that it keeps rain from coming down on top of you. And if there is a spill, it doesn't wash out. And we do take care of our spills. I like to put this in here because a lot of times the trash enclosure, uh, sometimes it's just chain link fence and we're not using chain link. We're using block. <clears throat> we'll have a site tight uh, gates on there that can be locked. This is the materials board showing the culture stone, the fiber board and the different colors, the different colors of the flashing as well as the right color for the canopy. And this, if anybody been there in Utah, uh, down in the Moab area, this is uh, Delicate Arch, which is a Utah feature for us. And I like to point a little bit, a bit out about our history and our culture from Maverick is definitely Utah. Any questions? Thank you. Uh, we will start with commissioner questions, uh, either for staff or the applicant. Anybody? Commissioner Thompson. Just a quick clarification. The EVs you said, what was the number again? Four? At the time we opened the store, we'll have four operational. Day ones. So it, the, the EVs work like this. You have a pedestal that'll have two, I call them extension cords. I know there's a specific name for it, but I call them extension cords. So you have two extension cords, that, so you have one pedestal that can serve as two cars. Then we'll plumb for four more. There's four more cars. So, so you have two dual chargers that'll service? 
Day one is one dual charger for two cars? Yeah, it's, yeah, because you have, uh, you have two extension cords that come off of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. So that'll be a total of eight. Oh, nice. I was not doing the math correctly. Commissioner Lamas. <laughs> thank you, Chair. Um, I also have a question for the applicant. Um, also regarding the electrical charging stations. I know um, during one of our previous meetings, we had talked about um, challenges at some charging stations that had the systems offline, weren't functioning, um, and that there, um, there was questions about how do we make sure that those units are functioning properly. And so I'm kind of curious if you could talk about um, who's responsible for the operation of those charging units? If one were to go out, um, you know, how, how would we make sure that those are, are online when people need them? Mm. Maverick will be the operator of the electric chargers. And so any type of maintenance responsibility will fall on Maverick. And if one goes out, then uh, we'll put in a maintenance ticket or whatever it is, or the store will put in a maintenance ticket. And then we'll have somebody that will, be, will come out to repair it. We use a Bosch charger. It's a level two charger. The whole electric charging thing for us right now, um, we're a gas station, okay? And I think it's, uh, but we realize that electric is becoming very popular. There's a lot of cars out there. We uh, have ex been exper uh, experimenting with which chargers would be the best. We've had stores in Utah, we have stores in Nevada and things like that. So uh, we've come down to right now that the Bosch charger is the best charger for us. It's compatible with a lot of our operating systems and everything else. Okay, thank you for that. Thanks, Commissioner Lamas. Seeing no additional questions from commission. Uh, clerk, do we have any speakers for this item? Thank you, Chair. I have no speakers on this item. Okay, no speakers. Bringing it back to the dais for commissioner comments, motions, seconds. Commissioner Macias Reed. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Obviously, we met, and um, I'm excited to see that you guys are including the charging stations. That's great. Um, so I would like to make a motion to move staff's recommendation for approval. All right. We have a motion from Commissioner Macias-Reed. Next, we have Commissioner Chase. Thank you, Chair. Um, before I uh, second the motion, I would like to say I, I, I think the architecture, the design of the, the building is, is very good. And I don't know if our design director had to beat you over the head, but it sounds like it came from you folks initially. So um, uh, nice looking project. And with that, I, I do second the motion. And we have a second from Commissioner Chase. Any other comments? Commissioner Thompson. Real quick on the EVs, um, only because you're coming from Utah, California, EV charging is a big deal because we have lots of EV cars that we're trying to incorporate into our infrastructure. Your location is fantastic, and you're right next to a really heavily populated, um, not heavily populated, but the, the apartment complexes behind you. So I think actually you have a really great opportunity to 
what you've got planned is fantastic. It's actually above, I know, the code minimum, so that's awesome. But push those um, additional ones that you're looking at for your future in faster to help service those who are in the apartment buildings to be able to utilize those as well, because that would be insanely convenient. That's all. Thank you, Commissioner Thompson. Uh, clerk, would you please take the vote? Thank you, Chair. Commissioners, if you can please unmute. Commissioner Zhang? Aye. Commissioner Chase? Aye. Commissioner Lamas? Aye. Commissioner Buckley? Aye. Commissioner Caden? Aye. Commissioner Hernandez is absent. Commissioner Macias Reed? Aye. Vice Chair Young? Aye. Commissioner Blunt? Aye. Commissioner Andrade? Aye. Commissioner Thompson? Aye. And Chair Wallace? Aye. Thank you. Motion passes. Thank you. Congratulations. All right. Next, we move to the discussion calendar. Um, the item is item number five, the Mixed Income Housing Ordinance Revised Recommendations. Uh, for folks' benefit, we're going to hear from the staff for presentation, and we'll take commissioner questions, and then we'll um, open it up for public comment, and then we'll bring it back to the dais for additional comments and recommendations. And then this is a receive, or sorry, this is review and comment, so there will be no uh, vote for this item. Okay. Good evening, Commissioner. Oh, take it away, Greta. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, it's good to see you all, Commissioners. Um, I am an associate planner in our long range planning division, um, and today I'll be presenting on our revised recommendations for the mixed income housing ordinance. The Mixed Income Housing Ordinance, which was last updated in 2015, establishes requirements for how new residential development contributes to the production of affordable housing in our city and implements the goals and policies of our housing element. We're currently underway with a project to consider amendments to this ordinance, and our adopted housing element provides direction for us to do so in Program H1. The first phase of this project was the release of a draft report, draft policy objectives, and potential ordinance options. During this first phase, we sought questions and feedback on the feasibility analysis, as well as input on the policy objectives um, and potential ordinance options. Phase two, where we are now, includes the release of preliminary and revised recommendations for a revised ordinance. And in the last phase, we'll move on to ordinance adoption. Staff has engaged with the Planning and Design Commission at each point in the process thus far, and today is seeking input on the revised recommendations for an ordinance framework. To recap, I want to provide an overview of the preliminary recommendations that were released in October of 2023. The original recommendations included on-site requirements with in-lieu fee and land dedication alternatives. You'll notice a shift in the way the options are presented using compliance option one, compliance option two, et cetera, rather than on-site requirements. And this is to ensure clarity when presenting the ordinance framework. As stated in previous presentations on this topic, alternatives are required to be offered when cities impose inclusionary requirements on rental developments. Given this reality, we want to make clear to stakeholders, community members, and decision makers what the options are to development projects as they come through. 
The original preliminary recommendations on-site options include a range from 50 to 70% area median income for rentals. Per square foot in, in lieu fees range from the current housing impact fee rate of $3.54 to $10, depending on market area. A phased-in approach was proposed for these in-lieu fees tied to market rate housing production, and large-scale development projects were required to include higher on-site options. Before reviewing the revised recommendations, I'll walk through what we heard during our outreach on the preliminary recommendations. Starting off with stakeholder comments, we heard concerns about market conditions and feasibility and we heard greatest concern from the central city development community over the feasibility of the in-lieu fee levels. We heard mixed support for the concept of inclusionary and some encouragement to focus on other tools like a broad-based tax. Um, and there was overall support for the phased-in approach of the in-lieu fees. However, there were mixed comments on the threshold trigger level that was set. Some wanted to see market area triggers while others wanted to see a lower threshold trigger level. There was support for having incentives for the on-site options. Um, some suggested having lower requirements for projects between 10 to 30 units in size. Others suggested that if the fees are lower than the cost of on-site unit provision, then other policies would be needed to affirmatively further fair housing, one of our policy objectives. We received comments to ensure that land dedication occurs in our higher opportunity areas, and there was also a preference stated to charge in-lieu fees on a pre-unit basis rather than per square foot fee and link that amount directly to the cost of providing affordable units. At our last Planning and Design Commission meeting, commissioners stated concerns about the current market feasibility. There was also a mixed support for the overall approach some expressed support for an on-site build requirement, and some expressed preference for a broad-based tax to support affordable housing development. It was also suggested that staff look at leveraging housing choice vouchers and the welfare property tax exemption to make on-site options more feasible. Lastly, at City Council, we heard that uh, the same concern about current market feasibility, a mixed support for the approach, um, but a desire to affirmatively further fair housing and see mixed income communities. Um, and some expressed a desire to look at a citywide uh, flat fee rate. Staff worked internally across the Community Development Department, Office of Innovation and Economic Development, and SHRA to develop revised recommendations based on what we heard in response to the preliminary recommendations. So I'll walk through these revised recommendations now. Staff is recommending an adjustment to the on-site options for rental and for sale projects. This adjustment is a reduction in both the amount and level of affordable units and the number of options available. Both the rental and for sale options have been slimmed down from three to four options just to one on-site option. This revised approach is meant to simplify the options and also create a more attainable option that is closer to the cost of the in-lieu fee which I'll review in more detail on the next slide. Staff is not recommending changes to the in-lieu fee levels. This is because we feel that the levels were appropriately set based on the feasibility analysis findings, and we are still recommending to phase in these fees based on market conditions. 
I'll also elaborate on this more in a moment. And lastly, there was a minor adjustment made to the market area map based on stakeholder input. So this graph shows the cost per square foot to comply with the various options offered between the original preliminary recommendations and the revised recommendations for rental projects specifically. The dark blue bar shows the in-lieu fee levels across the market areas, or it looks pretty dark on this, more like black on this screen here. The lighter blue bar, the second bar, shows the revised recommendation on-site option, and the gray bars show the original prelim preliminary recommendations on-site options. And this graph helps to demonstrate the relationship between the on-site options and the in-lieu fees. A major comment that was heard throughout the outreach that was conducted was a desire to affirmatively further fair housing and promote mixed income communities. And a primary method of doing this is by including on-site requirements. In lieu, if in-lieu fees are offered as an alternative, they should be roughly equivalent to or higher than the on-site option in order for it to be an option that's chosen among development projects. Thus, our, option, our options based on this feedback were to either increase the in-lieu fee levels or decrease the on-site options. So given the other input we received based on market feasibility and concern over the in-lieu fee levels already, we felt that adjustment of the on-site requirements was most appropriate. So now you can see the on-site options are more comparable to the in-lieu fees when compared to the preliminary recommendations. And this graph shows the same information for for sale projects. This shows that the cost of the on-site affordable unit provision is even more cost efficient in some market areas than the payment of the in-lieu fee, which should lead developers to choose this option more often. No changes are recommended to the exempt projects. Um, the affordable rental unit minimum term was maintained at 30 years. Um, projects must calculate affordable unit requirements as either a percentage of units or livable square footage. And the for sale homes can still be made available through a shared appreciation note or through uh, the use of scaled equity over time. There was a minor adjustment made to the market area boundaries based on input received regarding uh, zip, the zip code in the North Oak Park area that was previously included in the inner, south, and east neighborhood market area. That's, it used to be in the green area on this map, and now it's, it's been moved to the southern area map, which is the darker blue area on the lower um, side of the map, based on available rents and sales price data. Next, our proposal for the phased-in approach of the in-lieu fee has not changed. With this approach, the initial fee rate that would go into effect would be the current citywide housing impact fee rate of $3.54 per square foot with removal of the current fee exemption for high-density projects and the lower rate in the housing incentive zone. The proposal is to have the first step of the fee go into effect on January 1, 2025, and the remaining two steps would be implemented in the next fiscal year after citywide market rate housing production reaches 2,500 units in a calendar year. This graph shows citywide housing production from 2013 to 2022. The gray bar, uh, the gray portion of each bar represents market rate units, excluding accessory dwelling units. And the remaining green portion of each bar represents deed restricted affordable units and the accessory dwelling units. 
The red dotted line shows the proposed threshold amount of market rate housing production that would be required to phase in step two and three of the full in lieu rates. Some central city stakeholders expressed interest in uh, central city specific trigger or market area specific triggers. Um, staff recommends a citywide threshold because it provides a more stable and accurate lens of housing production. If smaller geographic areas are used, production looks more volatile due to a small number of projects coming in. And if geographic, smaller geographic areas were used, we would likely need to bring that threshold down a lot lower um, than is proposed at the citywide level. Other ordinance components include land dedication, larger requirements for large-scale development projects, and incentives for on-site units. Details were added under the land dedication requirements to address um, affirmatively furthering fair housing concerns raised by, raised by some of the commissioners at our last meeting, and no changes were made to the large-scale development project requirements. Related to incentives, a couple new options were added. Um, the ability for projects to potentially utilize state density bonus still remains so long as the threshold percentages under state law are met. A new incentive option of the use of the welfare property tax exemption was added. In this option, the city could facilitate a welfare property tax exemption for rental inclusionary units under existing state law. So to qualify, the developer must have a nonprofit partner and receive financial assistance from a public agency. In lieu fee funds could be utilized to provide a nominal amount of assistance to projects that pr propose on-site units and have a nonprofit partner and they would be able to qualify for the welfare tax exemption only for the inclusionary units in that project, not for all of the units in the project. Um, and use of this property tax exemption may offset the cost of projects restricting 7% of the project's units at 80% AMI by about five to $7 per square foot. Lastly, the ability of projects to utilize housing choice vouchers were housing choice vouchers was added. Um, while this is something that projects could do regardless of specification in an ordinance, um, it's something we wanted to highlight as a potential incentive or tool for um, on-site uh, unit production due to HUD fair market rent offerings in certain zip codes. The cost to projects of restricting the units at our specified levels may be offset by a nominal amount up to approximately $10 per square foot, depending on the location and the share of affordable units occupied by housing choice voucher holders. Staff will be taking these recommendations to the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Commission on March 6th and City Council on March 19th. Staff will be seeking council direction to craft an ordinance based on the presented framework. And following council direction on the 19th, staff will draft the ordinance revisions and bring them to the governing body, bodies, Planning and Design Commission, Law and Legislation, and City Council for approval in late summer 2024. This concludes my presentation, and we look forward to input and comments from the commissioners on these revised recommendations. Thank you. Thanks, Greta. All right. Uh, we're taking commissioner questions right now. Commissioner Caden. Thanks, Chair. And uh, thanks for the presentation, Greta. That was great. Um, just a couple of questions. So first is, is just, I think, one that we tried to get out last time, but I'm wondering if you um, had a chance to look more at it, is 
Do we have a sense with this policy with how many affordable units we'd actually be generating? And I know that's maybe tricky to do because, you know, it depends on where the development happens and if they go in, in Luffy or just, but if there, is there any sort of ballpark that we have? We haven't prepared an analysis, but we're looking to prepare this for council on March 19th just to um, estimate the amount of potential revenues. Um, but like you said, because the fee is a per square foot basis, um, we have to analyze you know, the amount of housing units produced, the, the size of those units. Um, so uh, it, it is difficult to know, also due to the phasing in of the in-lieu fees. Um, so it's going to be you know, a pretty rough estimate just um, based on our best guess. Okay. All right. Um, and so I uh, was really interested in the, in the property welfare tax exemption idea. I, I understand it. So it's, it's an existing exemption in state law, right? So folks are still, folks are using this right now. And so I was trying to understand a little bit more about what, what is different, I guess, in the proposal in the sense that what is, what is the city proposing to do that's different than the existing process that folks are using. Can you just, yeah, elaborate on that? Um, it is, it's, it's not different from what folks are already using. It's just the city um, essentially, um, you know, stating that we want to facilitate this. And so it would be, um, you know, the city um, in some form, you know, uh, essentially creating a program to be able to provide that nominal amount of um, subsidy to projects because right now we don't have um, uh, a program established at the city. Um, SHRA has a similar program. CADA has a program that's um, being utilized right now. So it's more of just a formalization of it and we're just highlighting that as a benefit for projects to use um, for the on-site option. So there's, there's not yet or I guess as of yet, any sort of commitment or like a pot of money that's been identified that we are gonna say, this is, this is where we're gonna pull subsidies from and then provide it to folks using this exemption. That's to be determined, is that right? Yeah, the proposal uh, suggests potentially use of in-lieu fee funds, um, but we haven't spe specified the amount or the source of funds specifically. Um, and then, so one, one thing I was thinking about, I think, is like, what is the impact of, that, of this policy in shifting demand, I guess, to our neighbors across the river or to Elk Grove, to you know, unincorporated Sacramento County? You know, I think the last thing that we want to do is kind of be pushing investment out of the city. Um, I guess I'm just kind of curious how staff has been thinking about that question and that sort of potential un unintended consequence. Thanks, Commissioner. That's a great questioner uh, question. Um, and, you know, I think we believe in developing a policy that's tailored to our goals and based on our feasibility analysis. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, we, we want to be, um, you know, a development-friendly city, um, but I'll just provide a, a overview briefly of um, some of our kind of jurisdictions, our surrounding jurisdictions requirements. Um, for example, in West Sacramento, um, their rental requirements are 5% uh, at very low and 5% at low. Um, so that's a total of 10%, and those are much lower than we're proposing. Um, they only uh, permit in-lieu fee use with council approval, and that's um, $7,500 per market rate unit. Um, and so 
if you do some math on that, that looks like um, about like 11 to $15 per square foot. Um, if you looked at like a 100 uh, unit project at 500 to 700 square feet um, average unit sizes. Um, their deed restriction terms are also uh, 55 years rather than 30. Sacramento County um, has an impact fee of $3.55. Um, they don't have an exemption for high-density projects. However, they are um, looking at updating their policy soon. I know they've uh, reached out to us about uh, potentially starting a feasibility analysis of their own to start um, looking at their policies. And then um, Elk Grove uh, has requirements at, um, or they just have a fee, a fee that is $3,600 per unit for multifamily, um, and that, using the same math in, in the West Sac example, would be um, between $5 to $7 per square foot. So we don't feel that, you know, Sacramento County has that lower fee right now, um, but with our phase-in of the in-lieu fee, um, you know, our our per square foot rate will be really similar um, right now for, for a good amount of time, likely, and then um, our our in-lieu fee full rates um, are, I think, comparable to, you know, Elk Groves um, and are even lower than West Sacramento's. We have much lower, lower requirements. So I think that we, you know, kind of fall somewhere in the middle and we, um, you know, are, are trying to tailor this, pro this policy to our policy objectives. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> oh, that's, that was great. Super helpful. Thank you. That's all my questions. Uh, Commissioner Buckley. Thank you, Chair. Um, great presentation, Greta. Thanks for stewarding us through this whole process as long as you have. Um, <clears throat> I didn't see my favorite part of the staff report usually, which are the values uh, that, that uh, guided this process. I think there are six of them. I was wondering if you could share those with us. I, I would go dig around for the old staff reports, but I just don't think I have the capacity to do that. Yes. All right. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Um, our policy objectives are to increase affordable housing production, ensure long-term affordability, affirmatively further fair housing, uh, anti-displacement, mixed-income communities, and not posing a constraint to overall housing production. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then, so I appreciate that, and I would just, you know, I'd recommend that, like, in I, I don't know what you're going to do for the city council or for other places, but I think they're really important. Um, and so including in the staff report, I think, is always a good um, addition. Um, take take that for what you will. I know you're in charge of your own staff reports. Um, land dedication, I wanted to ask a few questions about. Um, trying to find that section. I, my question really is around um, how we get to um, the size of the land that's in the dedication. I saw that there was um, sort of a calculus based on something that would have the same value of the fee if paid, I think I recall. Could you, could you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so um, the language here is um, that the land must have an appraised value equal to or exceeding the in-lieu fee that would be due, or if less, shall be credited towards the in-lieu fee to the extent of the appraised value. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's really kind of laying it out. Uh, we don't have other you know, size requirements right now, but I think 
Um, we could we could look at adding something that's more specific um, in in the final form of the of the ordinance. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense. And you know, when we get to the recommendations part of the conversation, maybe maybe we could talk about that. I'd I'd say that um, it might be helpful to have some sort of to understand sort of what that scale is. Um, you know, I know it, to in order to develop affordable housing, a certain amount of um, acreage is necessary. Mm -hmm. Sites are necessary, and I, I like the addition um, of the specificity in that that part of the report. Um, but to understand sort of like if we made it commensurate with what the fee would be, what would that, what would that, what would the outcome be on um, the size of the parcel and, and how that would be effective for the development of affordable housing? So that, that would be helpful. Um, and then I just wanted to ask a question around sort of the mixed income portion of our mixed income ordinance. Um, you know, a, a build requirement, would create, um, you know, potentially um, uh, mixed income in a particular development or area. Um, the land dedication could potentially do that, con considering we have some proximity requirements, and then we also have the um, requirement around um, around higher opportunity areas. So that might help us create mixed income. Do you have a vision for how the in lieu fee might advance advance the particular goal of a mixed income community? Thanks, uh, Commissioner. I think, um, you know, we haven't specified, um, you know, the way that the in-lieu fees would be utilized. Um, right now, our, our impact fee revenue um, goes to SHRA to administer those funds to projects. Um, right now, they're supporting workfor workforce affordable housing projects. Um, you know, SHRA has their funding uh, priorities um, that, you know, council, our city council provides input on and, you um, there are some some great priorities in there. Um, a you know a key um, priority right now is um, permit supportive housing. Um, but you know we haven't specified um, you know how the the in lieu fee funds from this would be used. Um, and so that's something that could be you know open to um, further um, discussion about how those fees could um, help us uh, meet our objective to affirmatively furthering fair housing. Would love uh, you know comments and thoughts on that too. Great, thank you. Um, I think that that sounds like the right direction to go. Um, I, my next question is around the difference in sort of the fee scale for the different parts of the city, and if you could just talk through a little bit about how we get to you know a higher fee for the central city and inner south and east west of I-5 um, versus other parts of the city. Just sort of what's the theory of of difference in uh, fee there? Yeah, um, maybe I'll have, David, do you want to come up just since you're even more well-versed in this? It's, um, you know, based on our feasibility analysis um, by, by market area, but maybe David can provide more detail of an, of an answer than me. Thank you. I'm David Dozema with Kaiser Marston Associates. Um, so the, the fee scale was driven by the feasibility results and, and where uh, show the strongest support for uh, either an in-lieu or a, a site requirement, and it was generally based on that. For As part of the feasibility analysis, we tested you know, different increments of in-lieu fee and kind of made a little rainbow in our report as to, you know, where that was supported more or less, and, and that, you know, general, broadly speaking, informed those, those fee recommendations. They were um, based on a, a condition in the market, as I think, you all appreciate it at this point. This was stronger than where we are today. 
Um, but but that's a, that was the, that was the approach. Thank you. My last question is around um, the large projects um, requirement. Am I to understand that the so the the two ways to uh, satisfy the ordinance there are the build requirement as laid out there and the land dedication and the in lieu fees are not on the table for that category? Correct. Those are all my questions. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Buckley. Uh, Commissioner Macias Reed. Thank you, Chair. So um, I have a lot of comments and questions. Um, I did, I was asked by Commissioner, or excuse me, Vice Chair Young, uh, if I could ask a question. I don't know if I'm gonna do it justice to him, but I will give it a try and start off with this. Um, I'm not sure where these numbers come from, and I'm not sure if in your report or analysis there are different numbers, but again, this is just what he gave me. Um, he um, gave me 80% AMI for a one bedroom. Market rent is about, 1609 right now and downtown market rate one bedroom is about 2160 so the difference would be $550 his question is can the rent difference be made up by section 8 voucher holders um i would need to look i think Oh, at um, the fair market rent for a specific zip code. Sure. I don't know where he got these numbers. This is, I'm assuming this might be something he got online looking at current rents. But I just wanted to ask the question and see if there was an answer. Yes, please. Christine <laughs> also could speak to this. We, we did a little looking at how fair market rents compared to the market rents in new, newly built projects. And generally speaking, um, the, the market rents in these newly built projects are higher than the, the fair market rents that uh, the, 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 the fair, excuse me, the housing choice vouchers will bring you up to. Um, so there is still a difference. They don't you know, fully make up for it. Um, I, I think I'm answering the question and I guess I, I appreciate Mr. it. I think to... we're both trying to answer the yeah. question. <laughs> Hopefully that was enough. Um, I appreciate it. Um, I kind of want to start off by uh, just generally making some comments. Um, again, we all know staff. Thank you again a million times over. You guys have done a lot of work on this. Um, I, I went back and watched the city council meeting um, on this subject, and it was extremely helpful um, for me. Um, obviously, our goal as a city um, is to provide opportunities to create mixed-income com communities. Um, and you know, I think after we've lost redevelopment financing, uh, all municipalities are looking for some way of filling that gap, right? Filling that need that we no longer have. Um, we're trying to find a mechanism f through which we can to fill the need, um, you know, while, while generating additional funding for the low-income units that we need. Um, it's a very difficult 
nut to crack, right? If we had the answers, we would have already answered it by now and come up with the solutions. That's why we're here going through this process. Um, and I think it does require a very fine balance. Um, I, I've done a lot of research. I really spent this entire week just reading through, um, you know, we've got the, the UC Berkeley Turner Center for Housing Report. Um, Urban Institute has some reports on inclusionary zoning. And what I'm, what I see, and just from the comments we've had in the past when we've had these discussions, it really kind of boils down to there's a lot of concern about market feasibility. Um, and I think that's a real concern, right? And I think there's many reasons why I think what, what I understand of inclusionary zoning policies that have occurred throughout our country and other cities and municipalities is that, um, you know, they are, they often rely on strong markets, right, to be feasible and to be, to, to really work, right? And, and I, I know that, you know, we're, we're not there now. Um, you know, I, I, I heard the comments at city council too, and I think there is a concern uh, from the council that, you know, we're not in a strong feasible market right now. Um, and uh, so I just, I, I want to put it out there that we, we absolutely have those goals of creating mixed income communities. We need housing across the board. We know we need affordable housing, but we need housing across the board. So I just kind of wanted to start off by, by saying um, that. Um, I, I have a question. <sighs> Sorry, I'm trying to organize my thoughts here. Um, I have a question on the fee structure that you're proposing. Um, I know that it was Council Member Jennings that had requested at the meeting uh, for staff to do an analysis on, okay, so the current HIF is at three, $3.54, right? But it, there were areas of the city that, it, that were excluded, right? Or there were opportunity areas or whatever the term was. I don't have that map in front of me, but that were excluded, right, from that area. Um, and I think the question was, could we look at an analysis where we're doing a $3.54 uh, in, in lieu fee, um, across the city, and what what additional income would that generate? As we're going through these discussions, I guess my question is, is the city going to be going through that analysis? Is that something that you're considering and working on right now? Um, thank you, Commissioner, for your comments. Um, I, I think this also kind of gets to um, Commissioner uh, Caden's question about um, the co uh, the potential generated revenues from this in lieu fee. Um, and so, you know, we, we could do that kind of same analysis looking at the $3.54 um, citywide rather than um, the other fee options that um, escalate in certain market areas. Um, that's certainly something that we can look at. Um, I think that's Yeah. Um, it, do you want to? <laughs> sure. Good evening. Uh, Matt Hurdle, uh, Manager of Long Range Planning. Uh, so the 
report also looked at, one of the questions we were asked as we were scoping out the project was, what would have been generated if there was no exemption for high density projects or housing incentive zone? And so it kind of gets, I think, another way of getting at your question is, okay, if we were to go 354 citywide, what would be generated? Well, I think one way of looking at that is going back in time. Obviously, there's caveats there, and Greta's looking up the exact numbers. I believe it was $9 million over time period that we looked at, um, but we'll get the exact numbers for you here in a minute. Um, obviously, there's caveats, right? There's could be argument made, well, if you had that fee in place, then maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the same level of housing production because, but it gives you some indication of what could have been generated um, if that fee was in place. So looking forward, if the fee, if there was no exemption and it was a, a flat fee, of course, there would be more generated, although um, the fees is predicated on the fact that we need to build housing, right? So if you're not building housing, you're not being fee. If you're, if you're, if you're building housing, you're getting the fee. Um, a lot of housing the last couple of years in particular has been, have been built in higher density areas in the central city and corridors and midtown. So majority of those projects have not been paying any of the fee because they're meeting the density thresholds. Sure. Yeah, I mean, generally when we're having these discussions, right, the point is to you know, capture whether it's fee generation or, in, you know, units on site or land dedication for future units. It's to realize more units of affordable housing, but only if development is occurring, occurring. And I think that's a really, really important thing that we need to be considering when we're talking about and having this discussion. Um, oh, gosh. Okay. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. I think we have the numbers if you want, if you want them, just to make sure I was okay. Yeah, absolutely, please. Yes, it was $9.8 million um, foregone due to the high-density um, high um, development uh, exemption. What was the year that you're talking about? 2016 through 2022. And then obviously COVID, but yeah. Okay, got it. Thank you. Um, because I, I know that in these conversations, whether it's through council or, you know, feedback you've received from, you know, stakeholders or through the commission, I've also heard a lot about, you know, what if we did a sort of more market-driven approach to this in-lieu fee structure, right? Because right now what we're asking is, you know, step one, we have that flat fee right across the city. But then when you get those building permit applications that the trigger, which is the 2,500 units, then we're going to, which means we're seeing development, right? Because once you get to building permit, they're ready to build, right? So that means these projects moving forward, we're going to go for, move forward and, and we're bumping you into step two. So then those fees are increases by 50%. And then in that second year, if we still have that trigger, we have, if we do meet that threshold of 2,500, then we will see that final increase, right? So clarification on that, please. Is on the initial trigger of 2,500, is that for, so is it we've received 2,500 units through building and that new rate kicks in for anything above that 25? Or is it just everything? So how, how does that, I guess? So in January, <clears throat> each, each new calendar year, we would look at the number of market rate housing units that were issued building permits. So excluding accessory dwelling units and excluding um, affordable deed restricted units. 
Um, if we hit that 2,500 unit threshold in that calendar year, looking back the previous year, then on July 1st, so the fiscal year of, the, of this next calendar year, we would kick in the next step two or step three, you know, the final fee rate. Um, so any permits that are being pulled after July 1 um, would be subject to that new in lieu fee rate. Understood. Do, would you mind um, pulling up, Greta, the, the slide that shows the, the trigger, please? This one? Yes, or thank the... you. That's the one. Thank you. So, so I see, like, you know, for example, here, like in 2019 through 2021, you know, let's say in 2019, we would have met that, that trigger, right? Let's just say we're, we're looking and we're starting there. Um, and for the preceding two years, we had, you know, those levels. Now, I guess my question, and again, this has been brought up, is like, could we incorporate a mechanism where, you know, it is market driven to a degree where we would revert back to a step one fee option if we're not producing the units to effectively charge at that, at that rate. So obviously we saw a drop down in production in 2022, for example. Like has that been considered? Has that been looked at? Have we? We haven't, we haven't looked at it, um, but that's not, you know, I think that's not off the table. It could be incorporated. Um, I think it just can potentially be difficult to administer. Um, we would need to think about what that would look like. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we would want to think about what, what number constitutes, um, you know, a, a bad market um, and, and use that sort of number, uh, a, lower, a lower threshold. Um, but it's not. You know, well, I guess my question is: I think we are already assuming that the threshold is twenty five hundred units. So, if it's coming in at under that, could we say, well, if we're not meeting that threshold of twenty five hundred, which we think isn't a robust enough to increase, you know, those fees, um, you know, that that would remain the trigger. Anyways, I, I think it's something to consider because we're really, you know, where I'm looking at this is it's very market driven. I mean, again, one of one of the goals is we don't want to pump the brakes on on development, right? So, you know, can we have that approach? So something to, to consider and look at. Um, the other thing that I just, another comment I want to make is, um, you know, we've talked a lot about, we've compared other inclusionary policies and zoning that, you know, the Sac County, that West Sac and others have instituted. I've obviously looked into many across the United States myself, um, but we really haven't talked about how many units are actually being produced as a result of those policies. And that's really something that I think as a commissioner, when we're making these really important policy decisions, it, it might be helpful. And I mean, I don't know if you have a better grasp or understanding of this yourself. Based on my research, I think the research has shown that there's just mixed results as a result of the fact that each municipality who has, you know, an inclusionary zoning process is, um, you know, that the policies and the ranges are so varied that you just can't really come up with a number of how many units per se. 
across the board, but I think that's a really important um, number, right? Because the policy itself, while well-intentioned, and yes, we want to see more affordable units and more housing generally, yes, we want to see mixed-income communities, absolutely. Um, but what are these policies actually generating, right, is, is I think the really big question that I want to know more about. Absolutely. Um, so in our staff memorandum that we released back in August, we included a summary of a, a table um, that included a summary of each of the jurisdictions that we did our deep dive case studies on. Um, and that table breaks down um, the amount of uh, housing produced overall and the number of lower income units and the percentage um, of lower income units produced. Uh, and so that, that's available in that table. And um, in, in it, we also include some overall housing production trends um, and really just noting, you know, was housing development, how did it compare um, to statewide housing production, um, like on a per capita basis? Um, and so just, you know, from, from the summary that we provided, um, you know, what I really gathered from our research was that, um, you know, when the market was doing well, you know, markets, market trends really affect housing production more, I think, than the inclusionary policies did. Um, but, you know, that's for the ones that we looked at. And um, I'll also, you know, point out that, um, you know, when you look at just the deed restriction, deed restricted um, number of units that are produced, um, comparing Sacramento to all of these jurisdictions, we do produce um, a fair amount, but it's not at the, um, um, you know, amounts that uh, we also, uh, include in our non-deed restricted affordable unit counts when we do our annual progress reporting every year. We do, um, you know, calculate um, based on, uh, you know, rents and sales price per square foot what we estimate those units to be categorized under by income category. Um, but I think it's important to also just note the importance of deed restricted units. Um, and that's how we looked at um, all of these jurisdictions. And so, um, I just want to point that out because sometimes it's a point that's brought across from the development community that we're over producing, but I don't know that that's really a fair comparison. And I'm sorry, can you reference the, the page number for the, the table? Yes, the staff memorandum is linked on the project webpage and the tables starts on page five, five through eight. And for the commission's benefit, the, the jurisdictions uh, that we were asked to look at, and we ran this through the housing policy working group and got input on what jurisdictions would be really important to look at. And so we did deep dive on San Jose, on Denver, Portland, Davis, Folsom, Roseville, West Sacramento. Thank you. And if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also think that we, over the last few years, have been producing more units overall than all of those cities, is that correct? I don't have that for all of the jurisdictions. Okay, that's fine, thank you. Um, the other question is, 
you know, I, I, that I don't know has necessarily been mentioned in our discussions, at least that I can recall, is like including a provision um, for like regularly reevaluating. Again, I'm going to resort back to the effectiveness of our policy. Again, I think in the last meeting I discussed that San Francisco, the county, was revisiting their inclusionary requirements and recommending a decrease in the amount of um, inclusionary units and requirements because, of course, they, again, are experiencing an unintended consequence and they want to reevaluate that, their policy. So what, what is going to be our plan and trigger moving forward to do so so that we don't experience any unintended consequences? Because I think, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of concern around that. Absolutely. <clears throat> and, you know, I think our goal is to create an ordinance that is, um, has some longevity to it, that is responsive to the market. So that's why we um, have our, our phase-in approach, and so we can certainly look at the kind of adjustment of the triggers. Um, but our, you know, generally our housing element usually provides that direction. Um, you know, we, we do our housing element update every eight years, as you know. Um, and so that's usually been kind of the driving force behind looking at the ordinance. Um, but, you know, we could always add, um, you know, some sort of direction language. Um, I, you know, I would just hate to see us reevaluate this before it's able to, yeah, prematurely to have some time to see its effect. And obviously, I know it's resource and staff time, but I think it's really important um, Again, like we're seeing happen in other and other counties, I think it's a really important thing that we haven't mentioned. So I just want to make sure that these comments are included moving forward in this discussion. Um, and I overall just, you know, I also know that one of the commissioners in our last meeting, I appreciated. I can't remember who it was, so forgive me, but they had brought up the question around the tax and uh, exemption. And, and I think it's a good option and opportunity to include that in the discussion um, and see if developers can capture that opportunity because, um, you, know, there, you know, there are a lot of things going on um, right now that can potentially increase the cost of development. Um, and it's all like, yes, we haven't updated, you know, our BOT, our business tax license in a long time. That's on the ballot right now. We have the DOU fees. That's been pushed forward. And now we're talking about some potential in, you, in lieu fees that could increase the cost even further. It's all happening at once. And it's, it's like shell shock, sort of. And so I guess, again, I just want to be mindful of our timing. Um, in all of this, I think that is incredibly important. Again, it's not so much about the concept and idea that we don't want to see um, more affordable units. I think it's just, um, you know, it's being able to capture them when the market is able to capture them. Um, you know, again, the, the menu of options is really important. It allows for some additional flexibility and for developers to maybe get a little more creative with how they approach it. So I think that, you know, options are very important. Um, incentives are very important. Uh, I think it was one of the council members, I'm a, I'm a mom, and I think this is an interesting, I think it's a very weird um, way to describe sort of this, this policy. But, you know, when I, when I look as, when I look at my children, like 
trying to ask them to do something or get them to do something by just asking them and or telling them to do it, I get like, you know, a zero percent, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I, they don't they don't do what I ask them to do. Um, zero, 100% of the time they don't do what I ask them to do. But when I try to, off, I mean, this is a very silly analogy, but it's not. Um, it's very, I think, relevant because um, that's why, you know, these options are so important because, you know, when I tell my kids, hey, I'll, if you do this, I'll give you, you know, a donut or whatever it is. I mean, these incentives, those, those are really important. Um, and so I just, I just want to end by, by giving that really funny analogy, but I think it is really important. Um, and just kind of perusing, I think right now those are all of my questions. So again, appreciate the conversation. I will yield. Thank you, Commissioner Messias-Reed. Uh, Commissioner Lamas. Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you, staff, for the presentation. I, I appreciated how um, you kind of gave a summary of the discussions that we've had here in the past and the council and how you try to incorporate that. I, it came through in the presentation. Um, I saw some more detailed numbers, and I liked how you guys are trying to paint the picture for folks to grasp their head around a really complex, um, multi-layered kind of concept. Um, one of the questions that I had um, was just kind of a clarifying one. I know it, I see it um, as one of the exemptions. There's a phrase or a note um, regarding enforced development agreements. Um, I'm just not familiar with those. I was wondering if staff could provide a little bit more clarification about what those are, where we would normally see those, and how often do those exemptions get awarded? Yes, um, that is a great question, Commissioner. We um, have a lot of development agreements in North Natomas. Um, we have development agreements, um, for example, Delta Shores has a development agreement, and we're in the process of actually mapping those so that um, we can have it um, as part of um, our, you know, for information purposes. Um, we, um, you know, essentially the development agreement just locks in the requirements of, um, or, you know, the agreed upon standards and um, what that development is going to provide um, in agreement with, you know, the city. Um, at a point in time, they have, this is the agreement, and so um, that this new requirement wouldn't apply um, to those areas. Um, but yes, we can, uh, we'll be providing that, that map. Um, I don't have a specific date, but um, I'm hoping that we can do that before our council um, meeting for this item. Okay, perfect, thank you. Um, and so it, it sounds like you referenced a specific area in North Thomas. It sounds like it's not a blanket um, exemption for properties in North Thomas. It's only those that have an executed development agreement Yes. Because I think I, there's like a, a financing plan in North Potomac, and I think many of the developers have to get one signed, and a lot of those are already in place. So I, and it sounds like this is kind of what you guys are going to be looking at. So I'd be curious to see what information gets shared on regarding these enforced development agreements. Um, the next question I had was about the... Um, 
for sale options. Uh, I know there's the Dream for All reference, and I believe it's just got some additional awards. So anyone who's interested in that program, they're, they're I think it's like $200 million across the state. Um, but um, it looks like that just, you know, I think the cap is 100 to 150 AMI. I don't know if you are familiar with the AMI levels, but but, but that's not my question. Um, but I see that, that, that this program would uh, qualify for meeting the um, these target um, AMI levels for this inclusionary policy, uh, but there's also an option for a shared equity, um, uh, or it says th through this um, shared appreciation note through the dream for all, or through the use of a scaled equity over time. So I'm curious, is that a program that the city's going to create and administer? And if you have any more information about how that would actually look like on the ground. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, uh, SHRA would um, likely be administering these um, uh, for sale project agreements. And so I think, you know, we would develop likely guideline language or um, some sort of direction to, to specify what that looks like over time. You know, um, if, the, if the homeowner decides to sell, um, and so, yeah, we don't have that specific language um, developed right now, but I think it would probably be developed through some sort of implementation guidelines or specified in the ordinance itself. Okay, perfect. And so then it sounds like, and this would make sense, you're partnering with SHRA to oversee the administration of that, and they would provide the oversight when the properties are sold and how things get to be up and stuff. Okay, thank you. Um, let me see. I think that's all my questions for now. Thank you. I yield my time. Thank you, Commissioner Lamas. Uh, Commissioner Buckley. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I forgot one question. Um, I'd like to, considering that the, uh, the large project category is the only one that triggers a, a build requirement potentially or the land dedication, I want to get a sense of how much of our production as a city does that account for? Um, yeah, I imagine that most of our um, most of our permits that come in are for less than 750 units. But can you get give us a sense of sort of how often uh, that'll be triggered, or sort of like how how light? How, yeah, I think you get the sense. But did, I'm just trying to get a sense of sort of scale and like how often is that really going to happen? Yeah, um, it's a good question. We, um, as you know, have the 100-acre threshold right now for our um, mixed-income housing strategy requirements, so our large projects like the rail yards, Delta Shores, um, uh, North Lake. Um, you know, we have that had that requirement in place um, since 2015, and so those are... So, you know, we have a list of projects, I think six or seven, that um, are required to develop mixed-income housing strategies. And I bring it up just because I think at the beginning of when we had this ordinance in place, we didn't know all of the areas that were going to hit that 100-plus um, acre threshold. And um, we could identify, you know, the areas of the city that, you know, are 15 acres or more um, and are appropriately zoned for housing. But we don't really know whether new parcels will be, you know, maybe put together or um, there could be future annexations or I don't, I don't want to say that, but, um, you know, we don't have a, a great um, idea because it is a pretty large 
project threshold size, but um, I just bring that up because sometimes projects that are large come out of nowhere and um, maybe not out of nowhere, but uh, <laughs> that are not as expected. Yeah, that makes sense. I understand there's some forecasting that's not really fair to ask you all to do. Um, I'm just, yeah, and I, I think the answer is my question. I, I think really what it'd be helpful to do is get a sense of sort of how much of the the stock going forward would be impacted um, by some of these requirements. And, um, you know, my default with saying something like 750, I think it's going to be not, you know, the overarching, the overwhelming percentage of, of units um, uh, that are developed over, let's say, the next 10 years, considering space in the city and, you know, things like that. So um, that would be helpful um, for our consideration. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Buckley. I'm up next. Uh, <laughs> um, Commissioner, uh, or Vice Chair Young left, and uh, Commissioner Macias Reed valiantly tried to clarify what we were trying to ask, but um, I'm gonna try. <laughs> um, so I think Christine is here from SHRA. <laughs> and um, I think we're trying to think about this from a like, slightly different perspective. So we've been thinking about like, what are the builders gonna do? And like, what kind of financing are they thinking about putting together in order to make a thing happen? But then there's also like, how do we deliver the profit on the other side? Um, and like, how, how, how does the existence of vouchers like play into that? And especially within the context of trying to create an opportunity to move to opportunity to affirmatively further fair housing, especially in places like the Central City where we have a lot of opportunity for transit-oriented development. And so um, can you clarify, are there things, are there ways to use housing choice vouchers in a mixed income project that helps a project pencil in its long-term pro forma? I think that's what he's trying to ask, but he'll be back and hopefully he'll clarify too. Hi, <laughs> sure. Uh, Christine Weikert with Sacramento Housing Redevelopment Agency. Um, you know, uh, Sacramento County has about 13,000 project or vouchers, housing choice vouchers. Sometimes we call them, call them Section 8 vouchers. And they, uh, for the most part, are utilized. Uh, families are using them in um, households today. Um, they're, you know, they, they come up from time to time um, when people move off the program for various reasons, families do. Um, many of those vouchers today are being placed in permanently into um, permanent supportive housing developments, like homeless developments um, that we're you know, building, helping um, to build affordable housing developers build, and those vouchers are placed permanently on those sites. But there are still vouchers that people can take um, and when they move out of one um, location or they come up on the list and get a new voucher, um, they can take them and they can take them anywhere they want. They can in the county of Sacramento and outside the county of Sacramento sometimes, right? Um, it is up to them to choose where they go. Um, if they chose, for, for example, to go to a unit that was developed in this, you know, as a result of the change in the um, mixed income housing ordinance, they absolutely could. And yes, the, the voucher is a market rate rent. Um, it, it will make up the, the hold of the voucher, pays 30% of their income, no matter what that is. And the voucher pays up to whatever fair markets are. And Greta is absolutely right. It depends on where 
you are um, in the city about what fair market rents are. They're higher in some areas and lower in areas, others. But I guess I just want to make sure it's clear that it would be up to that holder of that voucher. So if they wanted to live downtown, absolutely they could take their voucher downtown. But if they wanted to live in the south area, that's where they would take their voucher. We could not direct them to one of these units. That is super helpful. And then I just want to clarify then. So we have 13,000 vouchers in the county right now. And some of those are, are they being absorbed by like, because they're being converted to project-based vouchers or will we always, is like 13,000 sort of like the limit, give or take a few? Um, it's, that's, that's a hard question because HUD provides uh, the uh, housing authority with a certain dollar amount every year, which equates to vouchers that depends on the rents we have, you know, are paid with those vouchers. So if, you know, it, the number of actual vouchers can vary based on the rents in our county, so. But there's like sort of a, a there, there is a, a maximum pot of money, and like we can't really exceed it because correct, right? And that's you know based on Congress, right? It's it's really uh, you know it's pretty steady, but that, that amount they give us for vouchers can go up and down depending on what Congress appropriates. Thank you. That was really helpful. Uh, I have no other questions. Commissioner Macias Reed. One last comment. Um, I, I understand that, and Greta, you had said earlier that where did you come up with sort of the the numbers to for the you know in lieu fee structure, um, and in the central city you landed at the final rate of ten dollars per square foot, and that's sort of based on your analysis and research. It was sort of middle of the road compared to other cities. Um, I, it, this is more of a comment. And just that, you know, going higher in the central city overall for, for a fee, I think, is, is a little concerning because it's just, it just seems very counter to, you know, achieving our infill development goals, I think, overall as a city and, and even, like, our regional climate goals that we're trying to achieve. And so I... Definitely am concerned to charge the central city and I, and I understand to a degree right it's what what a development project can bear if you can get higher density then usually you can pencil it out a little more but um, I would just urge uh, us to to consider reconsider um, a higher fee in the central city for those reasons uh, Commissioner Zhang. Thank you, Chair. Um, so I, I'm still a little bit, um, I guess, with the with the um, updated uh, recommendations, even though the fees did come down a little bit, um, kind of going back to the feasibility study, um, the, the just the today's market conditions have just changed so much, and it's not just with the um, with the cost of inflation and cost of interest rate and things like that is, and this might be um, unrealistic to, to, to ask, but is there a way that that feasibility study can be updated with these new numbers? And you've probably been working on that since before I joined the commission, so maybe that's not possible, but um, it's, it's just really hard for me to fathom these numbers without an updated study that is relevant to today's market conditions. So I don't know if that's a possibility. But. Um, you totally understand the concern and, um, uh, you know, it's a 
valid question. I think um, ultimately we, uh, you know, we did conduct an analysis for two points in time, right? And so we have um, the more recent analysis that does show um, project infeasibility um, quite, quite across the board. Um, but we um, chose these um, in lieu fee levels um, using a prior more feasible market, but did not, for the most part, choose um, you know the highest fee levels that were um, able to be to be bared in that market. We still didn't choose the highest um, fee levels that. Um, could have been born under under that market, and so we still feel, um, you know, that these are reasonable um, fee levels, particularly considering the phase in of um, of the in lieu fee. Um, I, you know, would hesitate to, um, you know, conduct another feasibility analysis because I don't I don't know if it would get us to where we want to go, and it also will cost us more money as a city and more time. Um, and so, would love to, um, you know adopt an ordinance that's flexible and, um, you know, with flexible with the market and will have some longevity, like I said. Um, but that's my, that's kind of my, my best response for, for that question. I don't know if you have anything to Matt, add, Matt. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Commissioner Zhang. Uh, next, we have Commissioner Lummis. <laughs> Chair. Um, I had some follow-up questions for Christine, SHRA. <laughs> um, so uh, started talking about vouchers and got my brain turned a little bit. Um, there was a mention of the allocation from the federal government to the Housing Authority to um, distribute vouchers, right? And so that number changes depending on the market rents. Um, I'm curious, how, how often are those rents adjusted? Are they done annually? Annually. Okay. Um, and I know there was a there was a question about project-based vouchers. So is that um, off the table, like in the future, or is it is just too hard right now because you're all the vouchers are like called for, and you'd have to set some aside to build up enough to allocate them to a specific location? I'm curious what your thoughts are about project-based vouchers within the current climate that you have. Um, so we have been issuing a request for proposals uh, annually, and I cannot remember how many years in a row, at least the last five or six, um, for proposals for developers who want to build new housing, or existing, but usually new housing, um, for project-based vouchers. I think we've been allocating about 300 vouchers a year uh, in that time period for project-based. Um, the priority for project-based vouchers it ends up being actually for all vouchers basically but basically project-based vouchers specifically um, are those homeless individuals so that's where most of our vouchers have been going now as you project base those 300 every year that takes it out of the pool of people that have the tenant base that can go find other places to to live but um, uh, yeah we were committed to it there is a cap on how many vouchers you can project base. It's based, you know, had to establish that cap as a certain percent of your vouchers. So, you know, all the time we get closer to that. Um, but uh, yeah, we definitely are committed to project basing as many as we can. Good, thanks for that clarification. And the final question, sorry. Um, um, it was about this, the single family home options and this, um, 
shared equity model. Um, I'm curious, um, as SHRA would be administering this, would there be any consideration for, like, um, restricting the program to Sacramento residents, or would it be open to anyone? I, I think that question I'd have to defer to council, if that was possible at some point. But, um, but certainly we have administered lots of um, programs like that. And the first uh, mixed income housing ordinance version the, was more build, and, and it had um, several single family homes and developments were created because of that, and there was an equity sh share provision there. Um, I couldn't answer if we could restrict that uh, to Sacramento right, residents, though, at this time. Okay, so it sounds like that would come through some direction from council, you're saying? Council or legal council. I, I don't know the answer to that. I meant legal council. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Do we have any opinion on that? I would defer to SHRA legal counsel. They operate under a pretty involved regulatory scheme, and they would be best suited to answer that. I've just never been answered that, asked that question, so I can't, I don't know if we could restrict it. Gotcha. Okay. And that makes sense. I guess it just came to, to my mind because I know we have rents that are rising and the AMI levels, and I think we're setting them at 100% AMI to buy a single family home, but I think when you look at those numbers, it's really tough mm -hmm. for a person at 100% AMI to, to purchase a home. I administered the NSP program in San Joaquin County, and we went up to 120 AMI, and we still had a hard time. And so I'm just wondering, you know, is there an opportunity to try to help yeah. the families here in Sacramento uh, that meet that very narrow criteria? I think it's worth looking into for sure. Okay. Thank you. Yield my time. Thank you, Commissioner Lamas. We're going to take one more comment or question from Commissioner Blunt, and then we'll take public comments. Um, yes, hi. <clears throat> um, let me join the, the chorus of uh, Bravo for all of the work done here. It's uh, really Herculean, um, and I appreciate it. Um, my question is specifically around the outreach. Um, Notice during your presentation, primarily the takeaways. Um, seem to be around <clears throat> developer issues, and I, and I understand that, you know, you know, market feasibility is a major, major issue, and it's kind of a crux here. Um, but, no, but within the staff report, um, I went through the list of the outreach conducted, noted, um, particularly around stakeholder meetings, and, um, you know, that that seems to be reflective of what was in the groups that were spoken to because like that's that's who's in, in those meetings primarily um one group did stand out to me though was the sacramento area congregations together and i'm just curious um within the presentation uh what what was, what is their voice in there like what, what what did they add or is there anything of note from them that um you can share with us. Sure. Um, I don't want to speak for them at this meeting, but I'll do my best to um, to kind of summarize. I, you know, I think they're um, a you know strong strong supporter of um, inclusionary requirements, um, and you know we're joining some of the voices that were more 
leaning towards wanting to have higher in lieu fees or having having them match kind of those on-site requirements more closely. Um, generally, I think were the were the comments. Yeah. That's my only question. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Commissioner Blunt. Uh, Clerk, do we have speakers for this item? Thank you, Chair. Uh, we currently have nine speakers. Our first speaker will be James Allison. Good evening, Commissioners. My name is James Allison with the Midtown Association, representing over 1,200 properties in our central city. Our mission is to make Midtown the center for culture, creativity, and vibrancy in Sacramento's urban core. Across the board and across all income levels, there is simply not an adequate supply to meet the growing need for housing units. Further, this extreme shortage is a primary driver in the rent affordability crisis that we currently face. The solution that can address both of these challenges is simply building more housing. There are examples across the country that are tackling this issue of spurring housing, de housing development and production where inclusionary policies have failed. That is why cities like San Francisco have opted to roll back inclusionary requirements under the simple hope that doing so will reinvigorate a heavily stalled residential construction pipeline. We outlined our own concerns in a joint letter submitted to the city council, staff, and this commission. The key themes within that letter surround the KMA analysis indicating a lack of feasibility across submarkets, increases in rents for market rate renters to support affordable units, Sacramento's current affordable unit production rates, targeting the central city with the highest in-lieu fee amounts, the phase-in structure tying the central city development to major subdivisions, and a lack of consensus among researchers on the impacts of inclusionary housing policies. Put simply, the policy being considered today will not help to alleviate the crisis that we face and will not bring new units online in the city of Sacramento. A prescriptive on-site requirement removes the ability for developers to include affordable units at a level that makes sense for each individual project. Instead of creating barriers to new projects, we must find ways to encourage the expansion of private development of affordable units that is already being produced at a higher rate than is sought by current goals. The City of LA understands this, and in the years since Mayor Bass has implemented Executive Directive 1 to rapidly, rapidly streamline the approval of affordable projects, the City has received plans for more than 16,000 affordable units, all completely financed by pi private development with zero public funds. By creating an environment where developers can submit applications and have shovels in the ground in under a year, this has attracted market rate developers to seek entirely affordable projects for no other reason than it's simply an extremely attractive business decision. There are even programmatic solutions to ensuring that as our communities are built, there are safeguards to ensure that we build truly mixed income neighborhoods. Instead of a broad mandate, a more appropriate route might look instead like building an affordable unit credit program, which could cut, tie the development of market rate units to the development of affordable units. In this way, mirroring programs like the city sewer program or even the state cap and trade program, we do not discourage market rate development, but do encourage private partnership between market rate and affordable builders seeking a mutually beneficial strategy to get units built. Coupled with a more aggressive density bonus, ED1 style streamlining or other incentives, this is the start of a radically new system which is designed by nature to build housing units of all types in the city of Sacramento as quickly as possible. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Ben Radishoff. Um, thank you, Commissioners. Thank you, Chair Wallace. Uh, my name is Ben Radersdorf. I am a uh, 
Uh, I live in District 4 here. My wife and I own a home in Mansion Flats. Um, and I'm also, I'm a board member of House Sacramento, which is an all-volunteer grassroots effort to produce more affordable housing in Sacramento. Um, I'm really grateful uh, to staff. I know this has been such a hard, complicated process. It may even rival the general plan. Um, so I know that this is a difficult thing, but, but I want to be honest with this commission that um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty worried about this. Um, I'm, I want to be clear, unlike some sort of pro-build more housing people, I'm not a blanket opponent of IZ. I think there are examples where inclusionary can work. Portland's a really good one. Um, but there are three things about the, this decision point that we are facing right here that, that really give me some heartburn. Um, so first is, is just efficacy. You know, this idea of, of will we actually see units built. This is a policy that only delivers for affordable housing if market rate housing gets built. If it can bear, as, as Commissioner Young, who's not here, but he, he sort of summarized this, well, this is effectively a 1% to 2% tax on market rate housing to pay for affordable housing. And the question is, do we think the market can bear that? Um, in, the, in the feasibility analysis, which is really good, it's been done, the current market does not bear it, right? This won't produce any affordable housing because it won't produce any market rate housing. And I, you know, it's been pointed out, there's, a, there's another feasibility analysis in there that looks at more favorable market conditions, but those conditions are 2022. Right, when so not only are interest rates and, and building costs much lower, but also rents are higher. Your rents have come down by seven to 10% in real inflation adjusted terms since then, especially for new build market rate housing. That's a really good thing. And that is very much a credit to the work that all of you on this commission have done more than any city in the country to bring rents down in Sacramento. I'm really hopeful that those favorable market conditions will never return. And that is a victory. We should celebrate that, but we shouldn't be planning for them. Um, my other two concerns are more straightforward. One, as Commissioner Caden has mentioned, we really need to make sure that this is not accidentally an, a, a sprawl incentive, that we're pushing development out of the central city and out of the city of Sacramento entirely. There'd be a VMT disaster. And then third is, is equity. Um, you know, as, as I said, I'm a homeowner. Um, my wife and I were lucky enough to own our home. We're part of the 50% of Sacramento households that do. We don't pay a dime under this, right? We don't contribute at all under this proposal to our affordable housing burden. It falls exclusively on new rental housing. Um, and I think that's a problem. You know, $9.8 million, or I think it was $9.8 million, there's 100,000 parcels in the city of Sacramento. That's a one-time $98 parcel tax. Let's not, let's not settle for this because it's easy. Let's keep pushing council to do more with a broad-based tax that you know, I actually pay, and I imagine many of us would too. I think that's really important. I don't think we can settle. Thank you for, for your comments. Your time Thank is complete. You. Thank you. Our next speaker is Annie Keys. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Annie Keyes, here speaking on behalf of the Downtown Sacramento Partnership, representing 66 blocks of our residents, businesses, and property owners in the urban core. As this commission informs recommendations on updates to the Mixed Income Housing Ordinance, the Downtown Partnership would like to provide input on behalf of our stakeholders, who play a role in building out Sacramento's urban neighborhood. Over the past few years, we've experienced really encouraging momentum in housing development, with Sacramento emerging as a prime market in the region for welcoming new projects. And because of this surge, overall rents have stagnated for the last two years. But in large part due to rising interest rates and construction costs posing significant financial challenges to new development, 
we've seen this momentum come to a grinding halt. Over the past 12 months, downtown Sacramento has seen a 95% reduction in the number of construction starts of multifamily housing units when compared to the previous 12 months. And as we look ahead at updating the mixed income housing ordinance, we encourage the commission to consider the feasibility of imposing further cost burdens in an already difficult market. You all have received a letter from our coalition of organizations representing our fundamental challenges with updating the ordinance. And while we are in opposition to the current recommendations, we'd like to offer some suggestions to mitigate our concerns with the proposal. So first, we recommend uh, aligning the proposal more closely with the values outlined in the 2040 general plan update and creating better pathways to building more homes near transit by lowering, creating a lower fee tier for projects within a half mile of transit stops. Second, we urge an amendment to the phase-in schedule to create flexibility and longevity within this program by including an in-lieu fee step-down when a minimum unit production threshold is not met. We all agree that Sacramento is making huge strides to allow more housing to be built in neighborhoods citywide, and our policy should reflect those values by breaking down the financial barriers to building more housing. We want to acknowledge staff's very hard work and commitment to productive conversations in developing this proposal, and we look forward to continuing this dialogue. Thank you for the opportunity to comment. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Derek Kitron. Commissioners, my name is Derek Catron. I'm here on behalf of the Sacramento Association of Realtors to urge the Planning Commission to advise the City Council to reject this proposal. Um, a February 15 San Francisco Chronicle article headlined how the City of Sacramento found a solution to California's affordable housing crisis provides a clear example of when there's a priority that both government and the private sector are committing to finding a solution for. And when each one is allowed to operate in their own space to do what they do best, the community reaps the benefits from the outcome, which here is desperately needed housing. The new fees in the proposal would likely shut down most market rate housing production across the city, which ultimately raises the cost of housing for everyone. The current proposal for on-site building requirements is still infeasible according to the city's own analysis, and there is no analysis of how the fee increases would be feasible under today's market conditions. We need to give the new general plan time to work to develop more affordable housing options, and um, the, according to the city's analysis, the fee program has already resulted in more affordable housing unit production. The more of everything housing strategy that's been in place is better suited to the long-term affordability of housing in Sacramento, and we're already beginning to see those results. Rents have been falling faster than any other large city in California, even as it remains the most popular relocation destiny in the country. So it would be foolish to disrupt that now and put a halt to the building that is driving these sustainable decreases in housing costs. We need to give it time to continue working. This problem isn't gonna be solved overnight and it certainly won't be solved by halting that progress that's already taking place. Sacramento is now building more housing per capita than any other region in California, which is ultimately what's gonna drive costs down. So I'd like to urge the Planning Commission to reject this proposal and thank you for your time. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Chris Norum.
Good evening, Planning Commissioners. Chris Nora, North State Building Industry Association, representing most of the builders and uh, interested parties in the region. Uh, we're against this housing tax. Um, it's just going to make more housing unaffordable. Um, a lot of people had some really good comments tonight, so I don't want to repeat too much. Um, but, you know, the only the analysis basically just says that we're going to have to return to prior market conditions before anything's going to get built. And I don't think that you can really rely on um, a hypothetical like that. I think there needs to be really solid evidence that this is something that's even feasible. Um, you guys have looked at the UC Berkeley Turner Center report that says that housing right now is not feasible. Um, you know, just to put it in perspective, if apartments aren't built and a good chunk of market rate housing is not built, it's like three-fourths of the housing units that are produced in any given year won't be produced. How, apartments are about half of what the city produces in any given year. Um, so in some ways, I don't believe this is really for, affirmatively furthering fair housing because housing is not being produced. It's going to be affirmatively furthering housing in the surrounding jurisdictions. Um, and I just want to make sure there's one point, too. Earlier, it was asked about what the other surrounding jurisdictions are doing and what their policies are. Um, I can tell you for a fact that the, city, the county of Sacramento has no interest in expanding its, um, its program. It's asking for the analysis because it shows that the, this program is infeasible. They're not going to be increasing their fees. They're not going to be going for inclusionary zoning. The city of Sacramento will be the only one in the area that has that, if you guys, if not you, but the council chooses to pursue that. And we don't want to see housing pushed out to other areas. We don't see housing everywhere, but we really want to make sure that the county, the city doesn't have a proposal that uh, stifles that. So, um, you know, we really do think that you have a great new general plan. Everyone's worked really hard on it, and we should give that time to work to see if that actually, you know, achieves some of the goals you guys have. Um, revisit this in a few years when we can see what's really, when interest rates really stabilize, and we're not looking at 7 or 8% interest rates. Um, we do think that the in-lieu fee could be collected and put into a trust fund that actually pulls and allow any home builder who's doing affordable housing just to use that to waive fees. That would be a very effective use of this. It would be an alternative. Um, we've in the past suggested um, a nonprofit privatized housing trust like they've established in Placer County that could actually draw more state dollars and nonprofit investment dollars. Um, and we've also suggested using the model that's in Folsom, where they actually base the fee on a percentage basis of the house price and not on a static um, amount. So happy to continue to work with you guys. We appreciate the staff's work and outreach. They've been great. Um, it's a complicated area. I know it's hard. Everyone wants to build more affordable housing. Uh, I just don't think that this proposal really gets us to where we all really want to go. So thanks so much. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Matt McDonald. Good evening. Uh, I'm Matt McDonald with the California Apartment Association. We represent over 60,000 housing providers statewide, over 3,000 in Sacramento County. Uh, in December, we voiced our concerns to the City Council about the proposed changes to the Mixed Income Housing Ordinance. In the interim, we haven't seen anything to alter our view that these changes are extremely dangerous to the overall building and, uh, and investment climate to the city. With respect to apartments, on-site building requirements are still infeasible. Uh, we pointed out in December that since 2021, the rental housing industry has added over 8,000 new units in the Sacramento market, uh, with 2,500 of those coming in 2023 alone. As a result, uh, a recent study from Collier suggests um, that rents have recently started to come down across the region. That's encouraging, but it is very fragile. Um, and tonight you risk recommending a policy to the council 
that would effectively halt apartment construction in the city. To see this iteration of the proposal, of the proposal come back without uh, having come to grips with the impact on apartment construction is disappointing. If the housing crisis in, in, uh, in the city experiences backward momentum, I hope we won't be looking back to tonight and say they knew it wouldn't work, they were told it wouldn't work, but they did it anyway, and apartment investment in the city ended as a result. We urge you to take the time to devise a, pra a pragmatic, workable solution rather than prohibitively raise in lieu fees on apartments. Um, look deeper at the Jennings proposal. We thought we'd see more data on that at this point um, based on that idea, and we hope that changes very soon. And thank you for your time. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Daniel Perella. Hey everybody, members of the Planning and Design Commission, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity today and thank you very much for your service to this community. My name is Daniel Perla. I'm a local developer focused on attainable and affordable housing solutions. I'm representing a few organizations here today, including Region Builders, Urban Capital, Ibex Ventures, and my firm, Gateway Development. Together, my development partners and I are developing a pipeline of about 1,000 privately financed affordable housing units for low-income earners. This is the kind of missing middle housing Sacramento so desperately needs. It's our stance that the mixed income housing ordinance is just not a viable solution for creating more affordable housing. We, we, it's an inherently flawed policy that some of the uh, worst housing markets in the country, such as San Francisco, have followed for decades to, to with disastrous results. We think the mixed income housing ordinance will make it harder for us to raise capital for our projects. Capital follows good governance. Mixed income housing ordinance is not good governance. It will send the wrong signal to the capital markets, specifically the equity markets we rely on for investment, that Sacramento is not serious about solving its affordable housing crisis. Instead of inclusion, there are some truly progressive policies that will create more affordable housing without the negative unintended consequences of the mixed income housing ordinance. Look no further than Los Angeles. Los Angeles has several thousand units in the pipeline right now that are all 100% restricted towards 80% AMI unless they're using this with a combination of really three things. One is the welfare tax exemption, which two commissioners have asked questions about today. Another is they've successfully used the state density bonus law, specifically the one, uh, the super density bonus law. When a project is, is restricted to 100% of the units, 80% or less, you get all sorts of waivers and concessions that you can be used to make a lot more projects feasible. And then, of course, they've also combined that with an executive order that a lot of people are talking about right now. And that's the kind of good good governance that results in the kind of affordable housing that we think that Sacramento should be following. There's also some really exciting tools out there right now, like bond financing. Look no further than Orchard Park in, in Davis. So UC Davis got a 1,500-bed student housing community built with a bond financing program. And that's that actually naturally restricted for students. It's about five to six hundred dollars less than the market rate project that's across the street. I encourage the commissioners to look at that. I think the bond financing is something that the city of Sacramento can really look into, and I think it can really le be leveraged to create a lot of affordable housing in the city. And we think that tools like bond financing and rethinking existing partnerships, the city can actually solve this housing crisis in partnership with the local development community versus in opposition. We encourage the city to continue these conversations, and we look forward to partnering together to solve this problem collaboratively with tools and policies that actually work. Thanks for your time and, and, and consideration here. Thanks very much. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Nick Advis. Uh, Chair Wallace, uh, members of the Planning Commission, Nick Avdis, Avdis and Cucci, on behalf of several market rate builders and developers in the city. Uh, I'm probably batting cleanup here, which puts me in a position of perhaps awkwardly repeating what people have said, but so I'm going to refrain from that. I think, I think the bottom line, I think the, the last individual that spoke really hit on what I think the problem is here. 
I think we've approached this thing in looking at affordable housing and providing affordable housing as a, as a one tool kind of a, a problem here. And we look at increasing fees or imposing inclusionary uh, exactions on new projects when we should be taking a multi-pronged approach. For example, uh, I think we do need to look as a city at a citywide parcel tax that's, tax that's narrowly tailored to taxing everybody in the city, or at least proposing it to the city uh, residents uh, so we can vote on it. Uh, I don't think it's uh, fundamentally fair uh, to impose this burden on people building new housing units. And make no mistake about it, there are not housing units being produced right now. I have several projects, uh, clients with property holdings that are not moving forward because the burden is too high. Now, is it just this fee? No, it's not just this fee. There's a proposed fee, but this isn't going to make the projects that I currently have infeasible more feasible. You know, we currently went through significant increases in DOU fees. That was a that was something that did did move one of one project uh, uh, that I represented that moved that project into in infeasibility. You couple that with increased in uh, interest rates and uh, building material costs and you have projects that aren't moving forward. So, you know, my concern is while well-intentioned, we all agree that more housing is needed in our city. Furthering that goal is not gonna be achieved. In fact, the counter is gonna happen by passing additional burdens that would get passed on to, to building projects. So anyway, I won't belabor the point. I don't think the time is right. This analysis is based on, or the, the recommendations based on uh, market conditions that aren't in existence right now, which if it, to me seems fundamentally flawed and only going to exacerbate the problem. So I would encourage that this commission uh, urge the council to uh, uh, put this on ice and direct staff to work with the development community to come back with real world solutions that are going to result in overall more housing uh, to our city, which is desperately needed. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our last speaker is Tamika Lecluse. Hello, commissioners. Uh, my name is Tamika Lecluse. I'm the executive director of the Sacramento Community Land Trust. Um, I have to take a moment because I feel like we heard a lot of doomsday talk. That isn't actually what our eyes have been showing us. We all are Sacramento residents. We see that there is actually development happening, whether it's Natomas, Broadway, downtown, South Sac, let's not lie. Um, I do wanna thank you guys for your time. Um, Sacramento Community Land Trust, um, has been meeting with Sacramento area congregations together, as well as SHA, as well as LISNIC, uh, the legal services of Northern California that were, that were on that slide. And yes, you're right. It's not really reflective of the things that we asked. And actually, these recommendations are worse than the ones that we were originally presented with. And that's really hard to say. It was really disappointing. Um, and I'll also say that an, another commissioner had pointed out that yes, you know, this presentation and what we're hearing here in the audience isn't, is reflective of a certain group, but it's not the group who needs the housing. It's our low income, our very low income, our extremely low income families. So why are we putting everyone else, the folks who are going to make money anyway, up on a pedestal when the folks who need the actual housing are no, no, not reflected in this. How 
come we are only requiring inclusionary housing for properties, for project developments that are 750 units or more? What happens if somebody's like, okay, I'll just make 745? Then they only are maybe the 7%? It doesn't make sense. And it's not going to help us further affordable housing, which is a commitment of the city of Sacramento and its commissioners and its officers, which is you. So a couple of things, and I tried to speak fast, but also there were faster speakers that made my heart skip a beat. The in-lieu fee should be an exception, not an option. If you are gonna give people the easy way out, like you said with your kids, they're gonna take it. When we require housing be included, affordable housing be included in these developments. That's how we further affordable housing. That's how we can guarantee affordable housing is built. But if we are not requiring it, then how are we to say that we are supportive of it, that we are, that we are encouraging it, that we have policies that are going to further it? We absolutely do not. That's not what's going to happen. And I don't want the fear-mongering. What I want is us to actually serve the people. We are seeing thousands of people homeless on the streets. None of this reflects solving that problem. Thank you for your comments. Chair, I have no more speakers. Thank you, Clerk. All right. Um, thank you all for your comments. And we'll bring it back to the dais for uh, commissioner comments and recommendations to you staff on this proposal. Commissioner Thompson. Hi, uh, just a, a, especially listening to all of the speakers and uh, Commissioner Macias-Reed, you brought up one of my favorite personal points, which is a focus on um, what this is presented as an incentive system for increasing affordable housing, but in reality, it's not an actual incentive. It's, it's the creation of a pain point that then is trying to become an incentive. And I think, and I'm hearing from those who are coming to talk, that that system is actually ending up being a punishment for everybody uh, and is maybe not in line with the overall arching of just increasing housing overall. So if we're really going to create an incentive system, and I think I brought this up last time you guys came, what are other incentives that we can bring to the table that don't involve creating a pain point to make the incentive worth it? And I heard, I think, several different options that were brought to the table. I have zero idea about any of these. I, I don't even do any housing work myself, but I did, it does sound like there's a bunch of opportunities out there and other places that have things that are in place that are a more incentive-based option that don't involve adding an additional fee across the board that de-incentivize building. That's all. Thanks, Commissioner Thompson. Commissioner Zhang. Thank you, Chair. Um, I wanted to ask the city if, um, because a couple of our speakers had brought up um, possibly letting the general plan kind of play out and see how that um, affects um, the, the um, development of affordable housing just by for, for the, the more um, flexible zoning that is with the general plan update. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And is that an avenue that you've um, looked into as far as how, how it may kind of help to alleviate some of the um, issues with housing? 
And thank you, Commissioner. Uh, yes, we are very excited about the general plan and, and hope that you all come out and support the, the council adoption hearing on Tuesday. And if it is adopted by council as proposed, then it would be effective 30 days thereafter. So we are excited about that. There are a lot of things uh, related to land use and increasing flexibility, intensity and density of housing, especially near transit. There's of course, you know, the missing middle housing uh, policies that allow a greater array of housing types throughout our city. Uh, but there isn't direct correlation or direct mandates uh, for production or funding for uh, housing for our lowest income residents. And so I think that is, you know, kind of a little bit of the fundamental debate here, right, is, um, you know, housing production, increasing housing supply, brings some prices down, but it'll never bring prices down uh, that are affordable for many of our residents. And so this program, the Housing Impact Feed Now, uh, the, the um, proposal on the table would generate dollars that could be used for our lowest income residents. It would create a lower income housing that the market on itself cannot uh, you know, uh, build. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Kaden. Thank you, Chair. Um, so I, I, I guess just I want to reiterate um, what everyone's saying here about um, just to express, I guess, appreciation for staff for an attempt to walk a tightrope. You're walking a tightrope, and it's an incredibly complex policy question. Obviously, people feel very strongly on either side. So thank you for that. Um, you know, and, and I think it, I want to echo a lot of the comments that um, Commissioner Macias reed said around kind of supporting the goals of this policy, right? Totally support the goals. I think we all want to build more affordable housing. You know, I, I totally support, you know, more in, more mixed income housing, affirmatively furthering fair housing, all of that. I, d I think I continue to just have a philosophical challenge with just the concept of increasing costs on new housing as a means of raising money for affordable housing. Uh, it's, to me, feels very, very zero sum. It's kind of a zero sum way of approaching the crisis to me. I, I do agree with the, the sort of characterization that it is a tax on future renters, um, mostly in the central city, the way the structure is, um, to deliver affordability on other units. And you know, I, I think we should just be honest about what those trade-offs are. You know, reasonable people can come to different conclusions on that, but to, to me, there's just, there's no free lunch when it comes to paying for subsidized affordable housing. It's very expensive, that money comes from somewhere, you know, just back of the envelope, you know, looking at like a 200 unit apartment building, right, in, in the central city, that's $2 million, you know, at the full phase in. So that, that is a good amount of money and it does come from somewhere and it'd be, it would be really convenient and simple if we just, you know, knew that developers were gonna take that loss and they were just gonna make less profit. Or if they're doing an on-site, you know, option, take a loss on 7% of your units, you know, sharpen your pencil, take less profit. But it's just unfortunately not how it works. It's passed on to renters. Um, developers are rarely funding these projects, you know, in, entirely themselves. They're, they're financing construction through a lender. You know, if you cannot demonstrate that you can achieve a sufficient return, you don't get the loan. So um, it's somewhat outside of their control, right? It's, if, if you're required to take a loss on a certain portion of those units, you either make that up with higher rents on the other units, or you just don't build a project, which is bad for everybody, or you go to a different city and you build a project. Um, we heard from the public about you know, how actually we're seeing some really encouraging uh, numbers in, on housing in Sacramento right now. Um, just to repeat a couple of them, so rents are falling faster than any large city in California. Um, 
I've seen on apartment lists down 7%. I've, I don't know. It depends on where you look, but it, it's down in real terms over 7%. Um, you know, and, and I, would, I would actually challenge this idea that it's never going to deliver um, for folks who are 80% AMI. You can go on Zillow right now and find market rate housing on the open market right now that's affordable at 80% AMI. And there's, and I recognize it's not new, right, but that's part of the filtering process. But th there's a lot of things going on in those declines. Um, I, but I think undeniably a huge factor is higher vacancy rates that are made possible with a ton of new market rate housing. And yes, a, a lot of new affordable housing as well, which we've also done. Um, we're coming off a multi-decade high in apartments under construction in the region. Um, we had 1,200 affordable units delivered in 2022, which is incredible, right? We are, we're mobbing the floor with these other jurisdictions in the region. Like that is, it was like half of our units. So we're doing incredibly, I think, on delivering affordable units. Yes, you know, construction's going to come down in, in, you know, uh, when the 2023 numbers come out and certainly 2024 as well with the interest rates. Uh, but I think there is kind of some room for optimism on, um, you know, what we're doing with the general plan in this kind of midterm as we're sort of opening up these neighborhoods to more housing. So I, I, I do want to see what happens um, with that. But so, okay, so at the end of the day, I think if you are one of the 90,000 lower income households that live in Sacramento today, you know, would you prefer to be on a four-figure wait list for one of the affordable units that's delivered by this policy, which, you know, really optimistically, let's, it's going to be less than 200 units in a year, right? And there, again, 90,000 lower-income households. Or would you rather there just be abundant vacant units with reasonable rents on the open market, which there is today? And I know I'm oversimplifying, but I think it's a legitimate question that we should wrestle with. And I think for me, I don't think we should be creating this zero-sum game where we just prioritize one at the expense of the other. It really matters what the median rent is for lower-income renters, right? So I think that is a really important consideration that we just need to just always be focused on, is what, is, what are we doing to influence median rent on the open market? Um, I also fundamentally just don't think that these things have to be at odds. Um, you know, if we want to spend money to subsidize housing for folks, you know, below 80%, you know, in the 50%, we should, right? And I think that that is something that we should do, but let's tax ourselves to do that, right? Let's, let's pass this vacant lot tax that is being discussed. Um, parcel tax for affordable housing was brought up in, in public comment. I am still an incredibly big proponent of that. Maybe it's too late on the 2024 ballot at this point. I know the polling is tough, but I think we need to continue to make that case. Let's put it on the ballot in 2026. There's no reason why we have to just ask renters to pick up the tab to pay for affordable housing when we all need to share in that responsibility. So again, I, 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 sh I share the goals. I, I guess I just do not agree with the idea of increasing fees on housing right now to pay for affordable housing. Um, so that's my high-level comments. I have some specific comments here, I guess, if this is the path that we're going down. I just have some specific, I guess, recommendations for um, ways to me that we can kind of reduce some of the unintended consequences. Um, I think Portland was brought up earlier, uh, and, and they actually, you know, similar to San Francisco, recently made the decision that their inclusionary program was suppressing new housing, and so they decided to fully fund um, the inclusionary units through public subsidy. And I think they did that mostly, I think 90% of it was um, through tax abatement and, you know, they were doing um, no property tax on building value for 10 years. They were waiving impact fees on 
the below market rate homes. They waived construction excise taxes on um, the new market or the new affordable homes. Um, and I recognize, you know, we're in California, Prop 13. It, you know, we, we we don't have all of those tools available to us, which is too bad. But I'd like staff to just continue to explore any and all options for how we can put public dollars towards the affordable units that folks are doing as a part of the on-site option. I think we need some sort of public skin in the game. Um, I know, yeah, and we talked about the, the, the welfare property tax exemption. It does seem like an interesting tool, but it seems like it, it is also somewhat limited in its scale, so I'm like a little bit skeptical that it can be totally scaled up, but I, I would love for staff to continue to explore that option, you know, and, and I guess explore more than just the idea of putting in-lieu fees into that, because that's not exactly a public source, right? That's basically a tax on renters and then redirecting it. So I would love to have that be an actual public source if we're gonna put money towards that. Um, I'd also love to see the city explore streamlined ways of providing fee deferral for projects that are doing in-lieu fees or providing on-site units. Um, I, you know, it's a small thing, but I think, you know, delaying when you pay the fee from application to, you know, final permits or certificate occupancy or whatever it is, um, is going to save money for these projects. It's a way of, of reducing that kind of tax that we're talking about. I know it's an existing program that we do, but if there's any way that we can kind of, you know, lean in and kind of automatically apply that to these types of projects or help facilitate that in any way, would love for us to have to explore that. Another particular challenge, and I think um, uh, Commissioner Macias Reed brought this up, is that I, I have this kind of conceptual challenge with the submarkets approach where we have the highest fees in the lowest VMT part of the city. Um, and I understand like why that's the case. I know the central city projects, they have you know, perhaps more of an ability to absorb that extra cost, but I do really kind of worry, I guess, about the incentive structure that that creates where we have the highest fees, where we need the housing the most to deliver on climate goals. Um, especially kind of like after this whole conversation on the general plan, it does feel really counterintuitive to me. I think one thing I'd like to see staff explore on that um, and I, I think this came up in public comment, is, is perhaps doing some sort of transit overlay, right, where you get a reduction in the fee for projects that are located within a half mile of transit. Um, and I think, you know, one way you could do that is you could get kicked down a step in the table of three steps. So uh, in, the, in the table, right, on, on page three, I think at the top there it has the three different steps as the phase in. So you could set it up where you have, you know, if you're adjacent to transit and the rest of the city is in step two, you know, but you're transit adjacent, you get kicked down to step one. So that, that might be a way to set it up. Um, and then keeping on the topic of these, the phase in triggers, um, which I do think is a, is a really thoughtful approach, by the way, and I know that a lot, of what, a lot of work went into like trying to figure out what that trigger is, so thank you for that. Um, I would also like to see this idea of automatic triggers that send you down the steps um, in the same ways that we see triggers that send you up the steps. So, um, for example, so I, if I'm understanding it, right now everybody moves from step one to step two the next year after over 2,500. Am I getting that right? Okay. So part of the point of that, as I understand it, right, is to just be responsive to how you know, the, how healthy the market is. So you're increasing fees in a strong market, right? So you could have a trigger where you, if you dip below a certain threshold, it kicks you down a step into a relaxing fees in a cold market. Um, and again, I, probably a lot of work needs to go into figuring out exactly what that trigger is, but maybe it's something in the like, 
I know I understand maybe it's not 2,500, but maybe it's in the like 15 to, to 2,000 range. Um, 1,500 I was looking at like at the lowest, right? I think we've only had one year that's been below that in the last seven years. So, you know, we're not talking an every year thing, but just something in there that would ensure that we are being responsive to the market conditions and we're not just only going up and we're, all, we're just kind of, we're able to kind of go both ways. Um, and then I think I actually hadn't thought of this until you mentioned it in your presentation, but I, I would also support a lower threshold for these kind of smaller projects. I understand under 10 units exempt, which is great. We, d we just made this incredible action in the general plan where we actually, you know, could see some missing middle projects that are over 10 units and maybe in the 10 to 20 unit range. Um, so I, I, you know, maybe it's not an exemption, but a lower threshold for, for that type of project. If it's kind of a missing middle project, I think I would be supportive of that as well. Sorry for talking for so long. That's all I got. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Caden. Commissioner Macias-Reed. Um, thank you for the comments, uh, Commissioner Caden. Uh, really good, really good ideas, really good thoughts there. Um, so agree with everything you said. Um, I want to kind of just briefly talk on this notion of about the in-lieu fees and developers taking the option of in-lieu. Like say this, this moves forward as, as proposed um, and they're just going to take the in-lieu fee because it's easier. I think what we understand, and I would love to for staff to chime in on this because there's been a lot of conversation around it and some of the information is in, in the reports that you've provided. Um, and even Matt, I think you had some things to say is, um, you know, with the in-lieu fees, uh, you know, really what we're trying to get at here is like, if the private market right now can sustain like 80 AMI, right? Um, and we're looking to tackle the low and very low income, right? That that we're you know having a hard time having these projects pencil out. What my understanding is is that the in lieu fees um, could be used to build or invest in you know more permanent supportive housing, which really does tackle those hard to fund. And, and very vulnerable populations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, thank you, Commissioner. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so there will be flexibility to direct those dollars to the priority need. Uh, and councils express that need of being uh, around unhoused population and those at risk at, at homelessness and improved supportive housing. So there is the flexibility. There's also flexibility to use that to further AFFH, as we talked a little bit about. So we can, um, you know, council can direct how we want to develop those those guidelines and where where those dollars would go we don't have that same flexibility now under the housing impact fee model but beyond just the amount that it generates it is a vital mechanism for a local match for us to actually leverage the available state and federal dollars out there um, we need to continue to be really competitive there we need to have an ability to match and have that local match uh, SHRA really counts on those funds to be able to do that and yes, we would all love a, a large permanent funding source uh, that has been tried um, many times of, re of uh, recent years. We're gonna continue to look at options, including vacancy tax. We'll be doing voter polling on that in the next month and looking forward to reporting back on that. Um, but uh, those dollars, even if they're limited, and you know, on average of a million dollars for housing impact fee, 
really multiply that many fold based on the ability to match and leverage other funds from the state and federal government. That was all, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Buckley. Thank you, Chair. Um, there's so much to cover here, but um, I will switch gears and say I think I, I, I like the way the recommendations have um, shaped up. Um, I, I like um, some of the, well, at least one of the speakers, um, would like to see it go further. Um, I think, um, you know, getting to 7% um, and 80% AMI um, is uh, not going to have as deep an impact as the proposal had um, previously, while it's more feasible. Um, I think that staff did a good job in trying to strike a balance there. I think in reading the report and reading with what you were working with, it occurred to me that either the fee, in, in order to try to get people to do the build um, piece of it, um, that either the fee was going to have to go up or something was going to have to change there. And I think staff really worked hard to strike the right balance and got in the neighborhood. Um, as I said earlier, and I've said a few times, I'm be a broken record on this, but um, you know, public policy is very much about values to me. Um, and I think the choices we make in public policy, um, whether, whether or not we want to completely admit it all the time, are reflective of what our values are. And um, I think staff did a great job in laying out um, our sort of guiding, guiding pieces um, as we got into this process with increasing affordable housing. Um, addressing affordability, addressing affirmatively furthering fair housing, addressing displacement, um, addressing mixed income communities, um, and then feasibility, right? Um, and these conversations, I've been part of these conversations for at least 20 years now here in the city. Um, and this is, you know, this is Groundhog Day, deja vu all over again. Um, and it always comes down to this conversation around feasibility. And I don't want to be dismissive of that. I think as, uh, as Commissioner, Commissioner um, C.S. Reed lifted up, like, it's, it's a real issue, right? It's a real issue. But I, I think I'd also lift up that the other five of those values are real issues, too. And we have to find a way to, um, to address them and not just be in this discussion around uh, market feasibility um, while it's real, right, and try to find that balance. And I think staff did a good job of trying to reach there. Um, and, you know, I really liked uh, staff's response to thinking about other jurisdictions, you know, tailoring, tailoring our policies to our values and our goals is really important. And we don't want to necessarily put ourselves at some sort of disadvantage um, with our neighboring communities, but it also, and I know my colleagues would frame it, you know, maybe differently, but in some ways it's a little bit of a race to the bottom, right? If we're thinking about, well, they're doing lower fees and we want to see market rate housing happen in our community, so we need to do lower fees. I don't want us to get caught into that, in that frame. And I know there's another way of looking at it. I, I admit that, but that's, that's the frame that I'm, I'm concerned about. Um, I think, you know, the, the mixed income ordinance is about access to housing for low-income people at its core, right? Um, and I know the housing crisis impacts all of us and a broad swath of, um, of the population, but low-income people are catching the most hell. It is a, a, the most acute problem 
for those folks, folks who are who are at risk of falling into homelessness, um, uh, at risk of making choices about um, what kind of food their family eats, um, what kind of transport choice, transportation choices they make, what, you know, what kind of safe neighborhood they live in. Um, and I think it's important to, be, to um, ground a conversation around a mixed income ordinance in, in those folks' needs. Um, and, you know, I, I, I know Commissioner Caden uh, um, disagrees, but I, 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 um, I, I also share some um, reluctance to, to accept the notion of filtering. Um, and not because I think it'll never work, but because I think it'll take a long time. And it'll take a long time to get to those folks who acutely need the help right now. And that's why I'm attracted to um, this type of ordinance so that we can actually be taking steps to um, address the needs of the folks who are most acutely um, harmed by our housing crisis. Um, I think, you know, I don't want to discount the feasibility discussion. I think it's one that we should continue to have as a community. I, I've, you know, I've sat around here and talked about this for 20 years. I think I could talk about it for another 60 years and I won't have a developer come up here and tell me like that's the right amount for that fee. Um, and so I, I do think that that's a hard thing to balance with this notion of feasibility, right? Um, and so I'm inclined to um, you know, ha make a public policy decision where we are going with our values, where we are trying to address um, the needs of Sacramentans that are struggling the most, um, you know, as quickly as we can do it. And um, I think if we found that um, the notions of, um, you know, precipitous decline in our in, in development in Sacramento came to be, I think we'd reconsider that. Um, but what we've done over and over again is say, you know, oh, you know, the risk is too great, and so we can't implement it. And I think, I know folks have talked about, like, studies that um, address inclusionary. I just want to say, like, inclusionary is a tricky thing to study over time for a lot of reasons, right? People have mentioned um, the changes in the housing market or in the economy, but there's also the fact that, like, it was illegal for uh, a certain amount of time that some of those studies took place. So um, you may not know, but um, I'm sure you know, but um, folks may not know that, you know, uh, a Palmer decision, uh, a, a court decision came down in, in 2009, which actually effectively made uh, production requirements and in inclusionary zoning ordinances um, illegal. And so cities like City of Sacramento, that's how we got to our mixed income ordinance in part, um, had to tangle with, you know, it doesn't seem like we can do a production requirement anymore. What can we do to advance our affordable housing agenda? So I think when we look, I'm just skeptical that when we look at these reports of how inclusionary has tracked out, particularly in California, um, I'm not sure it hasn't been influenced by a number of factors that maybe we're not accounting for. Um, there's a deep history of housing policy in California. We've been tinkering with this for a while, and I think it's important for us to take all of that into consideration. Um, I would also say, um, you know, I, work, I also work in public policy and have for a while, and I appreciate the impulse for folks to say, we need more real-time information to be able to form public policy so that we can make sure that um, we're, we're responsive to the environment that we're in. But in general, that's just not how public policy works. 
we're always dealing with somewhat stale information. The, state, the information in the Turner Report probably has some staleness to it, right? So I don't think we can have that be, um, you know, this, if we can, look, if we can find, um, you know, up to the minute information to work with and be able to adjust public policy in real time, I'm attracted to that idea. I've never seen it. Um, and so, and I don't want it to hamstring us from being able to make decisions about what we want to do, um, particularly with something that's as important um, as uh, making sure there's affordable housing in the city. So um, I really appreciate the conversation. I appreciate the insights, but I think it's important for us to, um, for us to move forward with policies like these, um, you know, we said as part of our values, staff came to us with a recommendation of how we address our values and get there. And I think we have to take it seriously. And if there are other policies that staff lifts up for us that you know, offset the need for this one, I'm open to that. But this is what we've been presented with. This is the tool we've been presented with. Um, and if all of those values are important, I think it's important to move this forward. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Buckley. Um, I'm going to give my comments, and they're largely an echo of what other folks have said, but I want to start by saying that um, this is a democratic experiment, and um, what um, Tamika brought forward is that there are people in our community who feel like we are not listening to them, and we are ignoring their concerns, and they're really har harmed by that, and they're really hurting. And um, I know we like to get into the deep into the weeds. We're all wonks. Uh, but I just want to lift that up because I think that is part of the impulse that's motivating this effort, despite the fact that we know it's going to be really hard. Um, and so with that said, I also want to echo um, what Commissioner Caden has said, which is that if we want and we agree that we need affordable housing, we all need to participate in bringing it about in whatever way we possibly can. And we should do that in a way that is fair. Uh, so I continue to say that I support a, looking at a parcel tax. Um, I think we should think about finding funds in the budget to fund an affordable housing trust fund. Uh, we should look at other sources, uh, including private funds and regional collaborative agreements. I think there's some new legislation that enables us to work with other jurisdictions to pull down more dollars and work collaboratively in the region. Um, and generally, I think we have to do something, and I think the staff's proposal is a triangulation of a lot of factors and tries to achieve a, an appropriate balance. The devil's in the details. I think an in-lieu fee step down in response to market conditions is um, something we should definitely look at. Um, I think we need to keep the pressure on transit-oriented development, so we should not be trying to do anything that jeopardizes construction of uh, density near transit. Um, it's also, I don't know how we sort of address the loss of state workers coming down here, 100,000 of them every day to spend money, um, and the shift that's happened since COVID, unless we're going to replace some of those dollars with people who live here in the grid. Um, and then with respect to our land dedications, um, looking at building out strong partnerships with our local organizations like Mutual 
or the land trust or other nonprofit organizations. And then just, uh, again, keeping in mind that Sacramento is the region's VMT generator or VMT reduction generator. <laughs> um, and so we really have to strike that balance and make sure that we don't jeopardize that. So uh, next we have Commissioner Lamas. Thank you, Chair. Um, and uh, I just wanted to elevate Commissioner Tyrone's um, comments. He said a lot of good things that uh, uh, were very well put. Um, I also am in support of the city's recommendations um, laid out here in this uh, revised plan. I know um, I um, the goalposts or the there was a higher requirement or a higher threshold for inclusionary um, housing. I believe it was at like 15 in the beginning. Um, and so um, the city's trying to find this balance and um, I think we're, we're getting there. I know it's not, um, it's not easy, right? There's, there's factors to consider on both sides, but I, I do wanna be mindful of the ultimate goal of this mixed income housing ordinance and the need to build this necessary housing. Um, I know that there were some comments um, about um, the current uh, ordinance and how um, development has increased. I know um, uh, Commissioner uh, Buckley mentioned that um, those are sometimes very nuanced pieces of information. And I, and I know um, staff has provided a little bit of context in the past. I was wondering if you can uh, speak to that a little bit again um, as to to the numbers that we had with the prior ordinance of 2015, some of those market conditions that were happening as we were getting out of the recession, um, and um, some of the increased development that we've seen um, uh, since 2015. Um, I think I think you might be referring to the kind of graph that I previously maybe put together in a. Past yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think you know the the you know original ordinance uh, developed in 2000 was um, you know at a time when the city was still uh, ahead of a lot of greenfield growth or greenfield growth was a prime uh, a primary way that um, the city was being built out and and the ordinance applied to new growth areas in our city. Um, we had the great you know, our recession hit um, and, you know, greenfield development stopped. We weren't really seeing any infill development. Um, and then we had the Palmer case, uh, which, you know, um, reduced our abilities for inclusionary requirements. Um, and then, you know, coming out of the recession, we started seeing a little bit of infill happening and that was kind of like where we were going as a city, right, is wanting to support infill um, development. And so when we revised our ordinance, we uh, you know, exempted high density housing um, from, from the fee and um, made it a citywide, citywide fee um, with requirements for larger, uh, larger sites of 100 acres or more. Um, and since then, we've seen actually a, a great majority of our housing production be, um, you know, our infill, multifamily um, housing developments. And, uh, you know, we are, that's, that's the majority of our housing production now. And so I think that's what you were asking? Yes. Okay. Right. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, I didn't talk for two minutes. Um, 
not answering your question. Yeah, I think we're looking at this new point in time, right? Where it's we're in a a new a new picture again, where we are seeing a lot of multifamily development, but we're seeing a tough market again. It's not the same as the recession, but and that's why we really wanted to to build the phase in and appreciate all the comments about the other, you know, reverse trigger. Um, but yeah, that's it's a great great point. Um, it's difficult. Yes, yes, and thank you for that that additional context. I think um, that was um, what what I've been. That's kind of the sense that I'm getting is that it's really driven by the market, right? Uh, we've seen some of these reports and about cities that had the inclusionary zoning, and it wasn't necessarily that those inclusionary zonings were the the main factor that um, guided development one way or the other. It was the market, and so we're seeing that now um, as well, um, even with this decline. And I think that. It's an interesting um, kind of middle ground to try to tie it to some of these, um, this 2,500 um, threshold. Um, and, you know, as if we're seeing the market decline right now, like we're, we might not reach it for some time again, depending on, on what happens. And so it's not, it may not necessarily come into play um, instantly as, once it gets um, implemented because um, it may take some time for us to get back up to that, that level. Um, so I'm, I'm in support of having it um, in the way that it is. I, I think also there is some some issue with the lag in, in data and try and, and I can admin, imagine administratively how difficult that can be to try to constantly chase, chase numbers um, and to make adjustments in, in those fees. Um, and I can imagine you might just have um, a situation where they just go up and down like spike every other year depending on on those. Um, the, uh, those development numbers. Um, so, um, so I, I, I'm in support of the way it's it's currently proposed. Um, I, I'm also kind of um, one of the recommendations that um, I, I would propose to the city staff is um, highlighting um, some of the, the great work that's already happening. Right, and I think this is what this re revision um, aims to accomplish by including the property tax exemption by the housing choice. Um, voucher use. Um, I'm also curious because there's discussion about how this is going to impact development overall. If there might be uh, some value in including um, these density bonuses, the streamlining um, for uh, development projects, and how um, there are tools that the city is using to encourage further development, and how that may offset some of this, um, some of these concerns about hampering development. Um, I also um, appreciated in the slide that there was um, uh, like a family household situation or scenario um, and what they can purchase, um, what they can afford to purchase with like 80% of the area median income. I think it was like $392,000. Um, that that's very helpful, and I think it helps tell the story. And, and I know there was some reference about the market currently providing housing to families at eighty percent AMI. I'm kind of curious. Um, what is the market currently showing? Like, what is their area median incomes um, for Sacramento County, um, and what are the current um, household, you know, the rental uh, levels, and where do those align? Right, where where, where are we currently at um, with the market? Um, and so I think that that can be helpful as you're um, preparing these final reports. And uh, with that, I um, 
yield my time. Thank you. And um, we had. We're to a tag team. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Commissioner Chase. Thank you, Chair. Um, Greta, thank you very much. Uh, incredible job, you and staff. But you've, I know you've done a lot of the heavy lifting here. Um, I see a tremendous change uh, between the first time you came to us a few months back and, and what you've presented tonight. And, and I'm very uh, enthusiastic and positive about that. I think my, my primary concern right now is, uh, and I think we've heard it a little bit from, is the timing of the implementation of this. Um, We've heard many comments about, you know, we're, we're not in a really good uh, place right now from an economic standpoint, and, and I agree with that. So does that make this the best time to, to come along and plunk this down? I don't think so. My feeling is we should, uh, we should wait. And part of the reason I think we should wait is that there may be a couple of other options, I think. Um, we've heard uh, discussion of parcel tax tonight. I think there's also been discussion of a bond issue uh, for uh, yeah, affordable housing. As it is right now, we're, we're looking at putting uh, the onus of this on our residential developers, who you know many we've heard from. That's a relatively small bucket compared to what a parcel tax uh, or a bond issue would generate. And so I, I lean toward waiting to see if those you know th those either of those options do come forward. Uh, that I think would do a lot more toward you know um, get, getting a bigger chunk of this housing built. Um, that said, I, I know um, Commissioner Thompson mentioned earlier about the pain level, you know, and how much do we want to exert on, on our developers. Uh, I've worked with residential developers for 40 years or so. For the most part, they may say, I'm not going to do that. If you, if you do this, I won't build here. You know, sometimes it's a bluff, but it's not always. And there are times when if it doesn't pencil out, they will go elsewhere. And I've had clients who have done that. So I think we need to keep that in the mix uh, as we do go forward. Uh, it's got to be done at the right time, I think, that's positive uh, for everyone here. So I, I really think there's more potential in, in pursuing uh, a parcel, at least putting off this until we can see whether a parcel tax or a bond issue uh, could, could move forward to, to, uh, to do, uh, you know, deal with this. Um, I think there's some great, you know, great progress in, in your latest report here, and, and I, I really applaud that. But I, for me, it's a matter of timing right now, and I do think I would highly recommend that we, we hold off for a while. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Chase. Uh, Vice Chair Young. Thank you. I'm back. <laughs> Sorry, folks, <laughs> to take care of a family obligation. Um, yeah, I, having, having kind of gone through the, the staff report and having had a chance to kind of be in the, the housing policy committee and hearing some feedback also from the downtown partnership and, and the letters, I, I think that, you know, we, I can appreciate the tension, right? Like you have one group that's wanting the city to, to strive for deeper affordability and then you have this other side where, where they're like, let's, let's not put any more restrictions because it's already so difficult to develop. And, um, so I, I wanted to take the time to just first echo those sentiments and to just say the city does hear hear you. Um, I think at the same time, um, what I would say is that to me, the, the balancing point is to what degree can we arrive at affordability yet still be able to keep projects feasible? And, and I think that What's being proposed here is a step in that direction. Um, I think that, um, I'll just name, I, I think when you start 
shooting for deeper affordability, I think you're really talking about, okay, how are we gonna pay for this affordability? And I think as you go deeper, it becomes a lot more difficult to figure out what that solution is. Now, I, I think that I had mentioned um, <laughs> in some notes, which I passed on, um, that there are there are subsidy programs, right, that could enable the the unit that's being restricted at eighty percent AMI to get rents that exceed that, um, and still be able to to maintain that affordability. Now, that being said, I, I started thinking about this on my drive here, which was, well, I mean, it, it doesn't preclude the fact that, you know, you could possibly go deeper to 50%, 60% AMI because that voucher will basically pay up to whatever that fair market rent is. It may not be, you know, and I, I threw a figure, I was looking up on rent.com or whatever, I think a one-bedroom in downtown is 2160 a month and 80% AMI is 16.09 so that's like a delta of $550. So so that's that's what we're trying to kind of figure out is is how can we how can we somehow help figure out that that delta of $550. And so I think a tenant based voucher will will help maybe not get to 550 but but get awfully close to there. I think that there are also programs right now within the affordable housing world where healthcare is being kind of being tapped on the shoulder as coming up with a subsidy source, especially for those who are dealing with mental illness, those who are homeless. So, so that is a, another source. And I think the county also has its own resources that, that can be looked to. Um, I, I think that there's a win-win here. And I think that city staff kind of understand that and are kind of working towards that. So I think that there's some more refinement um, that needs to happen. But but I think, you know, the, the schedule is maybe to try to get it finalized in September. And so I think we have a little bit more time to, to hear hopefully some constructive ideas, right, that we can figure out a way to align. Like I, I think for the tenant-based voucher program, like I, I think that, yes, there's a limited supply, but I, I can foresee that, hey, if there's a tenant-based voucher holder who lives in, a, in an older project and sees a newer project in downtown, why wouldn't they want to move, right, to that newer project, right? The market is at work here. And so I think that there, I think that there are a lot more win-win situations, and I think we've got to really try to engage that dialogue um, to, to come up with it. And so I think... At first, I thought we could only deal with 80% AMIs, but I'm actually of the opinion now that, you know, if we staggered 50, 60% AMIs, I, I think it might work. I, I don't know, but it, at least in my mind, I see the possibility. Um, in commenting on the Sacramento Housing Alliance, I think in the letter, they, I, I think they were kind of throwing out like 150,000 a unit. I, I, I think that's that's asking an awful lot for a development to to pay for, you know, which which is equivalently to like a third of the project cost for for an affordable housing unit. I, I think that's that's really extreme. I think that'll kill kill projects. Um, so so again I think that um, I think that there's there's a way for us to get there. I think we're on the on on the right track. Um, I do want to address the, the comments made by Commissioner Chase about timing and um, bond issuances 
tax parcel taxes. I don't see it happening in this environment, in this recessionary environment. And um, I would love to. I've, I've made the call for it, but I just think that in this climate and historically, the city has, has not supported that. Um, I, I don't know when they would be willing to support it. Um, and so, so that said, I think that we have to, we have to try to maximize what, what opportunities we have now um, to just continue to, to, to just develop the best program that we can, right? And, and refine as we go, um, because this is, this is really the only viable option we have in front of us right now. Uh, thank you, Vice Chair Young. Welcome back. Uh, next, we have Commissioner Zhang. Um, I have a question. So this, so after tonight, um, what's what's the next step? It's going to, um, yeah. What's the next step after tonight? So you, there's going to be additional revisions, or or after tonight, we'll be taking um, Planning Commission input and input received. Um, you know, at our Housing Policy Working Group, we recently had. Um, and we are, uh, you know, considering making revisions before our city council um, meeting. We would love to, um, you know, have a recommendation framework for council that um, we could, you know, get some general support for and start working on an actual ordinance. So um, we are um, going to be looking at uh, making revisions to these recommendations before council. And then do, do you know yet at which, um, what's the next meeting where this is going to come before PDC again? It would be with a draft ordinance as we're currently um, proposing it. Or uh, on which date? Um, it'd, it'd be early summer. Oh, okay. Thank you. So, so we wouldn't make a recommendation to whether or not to move this up to council. Oh yeah, we're just summer. it's review and comment tonight. Okay, but but it, it'll be somewhere around summertime. Well, I'm asking because the reason I'm asking is I'm I'm going to be missing a couple of meetings um, coming up, and I just wanted to try to time that out as much try try to do what I can to be here. Understood. Yes, it would be in um, early August, likely that we'd be at planning commission. August eighth is our target date um, for planning commission, but. Um, that, that would be the date that we are essentially asking for, you know, to recommend the ordinance to, you know, law and legislation and city council. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Chair. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Commissioner Chase. Thank you, Chair. Um, I, I think I want to, uh, given the comments that uh, uh, Commissioner Young has put out there about the likely, I'm going to put, put my head in the sand and just assume that perhaps a parcel tax or bond issue may pass at some point. But in the meantime, as I propose that we, we wait on this ordinance, there are a couple of other things I think we, I would recommend we look at and follow as well. I think we know there are, serv there are several developers in the city who are doing, I call it affordability by design. Um, they're not using tax credits, they're not using subsidies, uh, and they are able to produce deed-restricted uh, units. And I think we should look into more about how, how feasible is that as a model uh, to promote as we go forward. Uh, you know, the kind project, 16th and E, I think they're, they're using that, that model. And 
um, if it can be done. I mean, because I think we all know that the cost of affordable housing, given all of the steps that you go through and what it takes to, most of the time costs more than a market rate housing to build. Um, the tax credits, the applications, you have to go through uh, the number of steps. So if, if this goal that we're trying to achieve is in fact uh, possible by going, you know, an end run uh, around that traditional process, I think we owe it to the city uh, to, to at least look at it and investigate and see if, how feasible it can be going forward. Apparently it's working right now. There's one project that is completed, one's un under construction. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Chase. Uh, I don't see any additional comments or speakers waiting, so I'm going to say we're done with this item. And uh, now it's time for, where is it? <laughs> uh, member comments, ideas, questions, and uh, other uh, ideas. So is there any commissioners who wish to speak? I know it's been a long night. Okay, seeing none. <laughs> uh, Clerk, do we have anyone who wants to speak on this item? Thank you, Chair. I have no speaker slips. All right, thank you. All right. Um, then I guess we're done, right? <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I know this was a long meeting and there was a lot of thinking, um, but I appreciate everyone's attentiveness to all of this really detailed and complex and very uh, important uh, content. So, with that, have a good night, and we're adjourned at 8.40 p.m.